As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Welcome back, or welcome to this bonus edition of the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we will not be discussing Bo Kenny or the Saturday Night Hooker. <laughs> what today's podcast is, it's, a, it's an audio rebroadcast of a live webinar uh, that Justin Lamb, my co-instructor within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, yes, five-time NHRA world champion, Justin Lamb, and I hosted uh, Tuesday night, December 1st. Uh, it was a public webinar. It was a free webinar. Um, and within it, as you'll hear uh, here, we not only kind of selected a handful of common questions that we are approached with religiously, regularly, within and beyond This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we then opened the floor to the audience, and the audience was massive. I think we had over 300 people, um, 300 racers in the webinar, and it's seemingly most of them had questions or topics, which was great. Like, the interaction was fantastic. The result is a, is a three-hour-long webinar, which is now going to be a three-hour-long podcast, um, but the content really throughout is pretty incredible. I mean, you get... 
the Justin Lamb in a room with his technical knowledge and and us just kind of riffing back and forth uh, on various questions on literally all facets of racing and um, uh, my hope is that you can find some benefit from it and uh, so listen through this webinar uh, and take your time with it um, hopefully you'll find something that can benefit you um, it's a little glimpse inside life within our premier membership community this is bracket racing elite uh, you'll hear some ads for elite if you're listening to this this week uh, between December 2nd and December 4th enrollment in elite is open you can check that out you can learn more at this is bracketracing.com slash elite just rest assured that if you like anything that you hear in this episode I have a feeling you will love this is bracket racing elite check it out when you get an opportunity again this is bracketracing.com slash elite without further ado I'll throw it briefly to PJ and then we'll jump right in. Again, this is just going to be the audio rebroadcast of our live webinar from a couple of nights ago. Welcome to our Inside Elite webinar. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Thank you for having the trust, the faith in me, in Justin, in our entire thisisbracketracing.com team to make this investment to spend you know the next hour of your life here talking racing with us. Uh, the, that means a ton to us. And uh, rest assured, we fully intend to make this 100% worth your while. As you can see, I am joined today by my co-instructor in This Is Bracket Racing Elite, five-time NHRA world champion, Justin Lamb. JL, on behalf of everyone here watching, I want to say thank you for taking the time to join us here tonight and being a part of this thing. Well, thank you, uh, thank you all for watching, and thank you, Luke, for uh, obviously creating This Is Bracket Racing Elite and uh, giving me the opportunity to be part of your team. It's pretty awesome. Man, I am fired up for tonight. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking. We do this every day within This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It's not often that we get to do it with the public. So uh, this is fun. We've got a big crowd tonight. Uh, in addition to Justin, Another one of our team members, I'll see if I can get him to turn his camera on just for a second. Jordan Pratt is here with us. Uh, Jordan was an original member of This Is Bracket Racing Elite. There's Jordan. Um, and has since been become an integral part of our team. Jordan's role tonight, he'll be a little bit more behind the scenes, but he will be kind of manning the chat room for us. And at this time, I want you all to kind of familiarize yourself with the chat feature here on Demio. If there's one thing that we have learned from hosting 
I don't know, a dozen or so of these over the years, it's that this works so much better. Everyone gets more out of this, the more interaction there is between you and Justin and I. So the more questions, comments, um, you know, personal experience stories that you want to share there in the comments, in the chat, feel free to do that. They say Jordan's going to be kind of overseeing that. He's going to be our eye in the sky. He will be sharing some links uh, to kind of expand upon the things that uh, we're talking about. He'll be polling you. He'll be answering questions on our behalf. And then perhaps most importantly, he'll be funneling the most relevant uh, questions and topics to Justin and myself throughout the day. So like I say, don't be a stranger. Don't be shy. Jump right into the chat room there. Let's get right to this, all right? Obviously, the reason that you're here tonight, the reason that you're here with us is you see the opportunity to improve your on-track game. And with that in mind, I've got one big question for you to consider. You don't have to answer it right now, but think about this. Where is your biggest area of opportunity as it pertains to racing? I want you to be honest with yourself here because there are always areas and ways in which to improve. Maybe think of it as, okay, what's my weakest link right now? Is it on the starting line? Could it be the consistency and or dependability of your race car? Maybe it's finish line execution. Maybe you feel as though you fail to execute under pressure in those big rounds. Perhaps you attribute that to a lack of preparation. Maybe it's more of a lack of confidence. Maybe several of these bullet points that I just rolled through resonate for you, perhaps all of them. And if I'm honest, myself included, like I think most of us see room for improvement in all areas of the game, but that's overwhelming. Like that's not where I want you to focus. I really want you to think through this and pick one specific facet of our game where you can grow. Maybe that's the area that you see the most opportunity for improvement. Like this is my struggle point and I want to, I want to, to, want to raise the level of that up significantly. Or you could also argue that uh, it's not necessarily the, the, the area of the biggest struggle, but it's the area in which you could see the most immediate improvement, the low hanging fruit, if you will. I'll never forget uh, one of the, the great lectures that I got in my years in college. It was, the professor was talking about getting, working your way out of debt, right? And the idea was like, you could approach this mathematically and say, okay, let's say that you've got five different, you know, debts. You start with the, the biggest one and knock that out first, or you start with the one with the highest interest rate. And he said, mathematically, that makes sense. But psychologically, you actually want to do the opposite. You want to start with the smallest debt. The reason being that as you pay that off, you begin to get momentum. You begin to feel as though, hey, there's light at the end of the tunnel and this insurmountable debt suddenly seems like it's something doable. Perhaps your improvement in racing can follow that same course. Maybe it's best to start with something that you can make significant gains almost immediately and get that motivation, get that momentum going and go from there. Regardless, as we go along, I want you to be thinking about that, that most obvious and or critical area of opportunity in your own racing. And we'll circle back to it later. What you'll see tonight is a condensed version of what we do. Okay, Justin and I have coached thousands, literally thousands 
of racers within This Is Bracket Racing Elite. What we share is the same process that he and I have developed, that we've implemented personally over the course of the last, what, two plus decades in our sport. We've lived this stuff. And I've had tremendous success. Justin has had tremendous success. Many of you know that uh, three years ago, I, I captured the, the biggest win of my career at the Spring Fling Million in Las Vegas. You may also know that I'm a two-time NHRA world champion. My two titles pale in comparison to Justin's five titles. Uh, you probably came in with some uh, awareness of our success, right? You know that. What you may not know is, and I'm speaking you know, personally for myself here, like I'm not far removed from dropping the front bumper off of my old 73 Nova, you know, the big crash bumpers. I think that thing weighed a hundred pounds. I'm not far from dropping that off of my Nova at the racetrack, setting it on my open trailer at Cedar Creek Dragway because on my time trial, I ran 905, eighth mile, and the Super Pro bump was 899. And I figured that's the easiest way to pick up a 10th right? I'm not far removed from doubting whether or not I would ever win my first NHRA national event. Like I went to those for a decade before I was able to break through. I'm not far removed from questioning whether I belonged even competing at the highest levels of our sport. And I'm not far removed from thinking that I may never reach these lofty on-track dreams and goals that I'd set for myself. Again, that's my history. But Justin comes from a similar background. My point here is that we know how it feels, right? We know how it feels to struggle. I know how it feels to doubt whether or not I could do it. And I know how it feels to, to question all of, if all of this time, money, energy that we pour into this sport, if it's really worthwhile. Over the past 20 years, I have improved immensely as a racer. And I'm still, I would like to think, improving every day. Not just every race day, but every single day. More importantly, Justin and I, we are helping racers just like you. Thousands of racers just like you every single day. And here tonight, we are here to help you. Here's what you can expect today, okay? We're going to be pretty broad in our um, you know, presentation and our subject matter today. This is a little bit different than any of the webinars that we've done in the past where we kind of come in with a, a set presentation. This is gonna be more of like open Q&A. Okay, we're gonna kick things off by sharing uh, a handful of the most common questions that Justin and I field both within and beyond This Is Bracket Racing Elite on a daily basis. We're gonna feature some of our more, uh, some of our favorite recent topics from the community and, and discuss a handful of those today. And then after that, like I say, it's just open Q&A, interaction between you and us. Our hope is that we can highlight uh, a few things that you can do right now to begin the process of improvement on the racetrack. After that, we're going to share a free training resource that will allow you to take a deeper dive at improvement. And listen, this is not just some BS teaser, okay? What we're going to give away about a half hour from now, it's immense. It includes 10 of our favorite individual lessons. It's a $50 value, yours free, just for being here tonight. So be sure to stick around and take advantage of that 
exclusive offer. Before we're done, I'm going to share just a little bit of information about our premier membership community, how we can help you become the best version of yourself on the racetrack in your limited opportunity to join. And then, of course, we will open the floor to you to provide questions, to provide topics that apply directly to your biggest areas of opportunity this offseason and then throughout 2021. So the idea is let's get better together. Let's start right now. One quick note here. If you are watching this live on our Facebook feed, we're going to stop the Facebook feed now. Okay, we want to encourage you, if you'd like to continue, punch through, hit the link, join us here on this webinar, webinar platform. It's about to get good. What we're going to share now um, is in a little bit more intimate setting uh, with a lot more interaction, and you need to be on this platform to take advantage of it. So like I say, pump through, punch through, and join us. Now, listen, we emailed you a worksheet uh, when you signed up for tonight's webinar. If you took the time to, if you got that, if you took the time to print it out, uh, I would encourage you grab it now so that you can kind of work through this, take notes as Justin and I walk through this. Um, if you didn't print that out, if you didn't receive that email, no worries, okay? Just feel free. You can take some notes on your own. Or you can just watch along as we go. Justin's gonna jump back in and join me here now. As we get to our first question, we're going to focus initially on the finish line, JL. This question comes from Jim Oliver. This is, uh, Jim's a longtime member, might've been one of the charter members, to be honest, of This Is Bracket Racing Elite. And what he's asking about specifically here is a term that we refer to as the spot drop. What Jim asks is, if you're using the mile per hour cone of in an eighth mile bracket race as your drop spot, are you burping the throttle? Are you laying on the brakes to drop to dead on? How much are you holding to get there? Justin, I want to throw this to you, but before I do, I feel like we should take just a second to make sure that everyone here is on the same page in terms of the verbiage and the vernacular, because we use the term spot drop a lot in our teachings and in our kind of day-to-day uh, -day within This Is Bracket Racing, but what we refer to when we say spot drop is basically the idea that, let me use an example, let's say that I'm in my Vega and I'm capable of going 640 uh, to the eighth, and I'm really confident that I can go 640. If I was to employ the spot drop strategy, I would dial up a predetermined amount here. Let's just say it's 200s. And I would dial 642, not necessarily with the intention of, you know, wheeling my opponent through at the finish line or out driving my opponent at the finish line, but more so with the intention of, okay, I'm going to drive to a predetermined spot on the racetrack I'm going to kill 200s and I'm going to light the scoreboard up dead on. And you may be saying, okay, why would you do that? Like, what's the advantage to that? Let's take the example one step further. Let's say that Justin and I are racing and I'm I can go 640 in my Vega. And what's your copo go, Justin? Like 620 to the eight, something like that? Like six O's, yeah. Okay, so let's say you're down six flat. And let's say in this instance, Justin's is normal, 005, and I'm 25 on the tree. And as we proceed down the racetrack, let's say that Justin's actually going 5,000 under. You can go 599 with a five. And I'm going what I think I'm going. I'm going dead on. Well, as we approach the finish line, Justin's 200 ahead of me on the tree. He's going 5,000 under. I'm say, let's say going uh, 5,000 above. As we approach the finish line, Justin's going to be 300s ahead. 
whether he came into the round thinking that he could go 5,000 thunder or not, like the average racer with a pulse in the other lane here is going to realize like, hey, I'm way ahead. Like I, I can lift a little bit and the odds are Justin's going to kill at least the 5,000s needed to, to safely cross the finish line first and not go under. If we were to approach this, if I was to approach that round as the spot dropper, again, I'm still confident I can go 640. I'm going to dial 642, let's say. Exact same round. Justin's still 005. I'm still 25. But now as we approach the finish line, I'm going 200s under. Justin's still going 5,000s under. But as we approach the finish line, now instead of being 300s ahead, Justin's like 5 to 10 thou ahead. And assuming that he doesn't think he can go under, he can make the decision at that point, like, hey, I have to hold it on the floor. Well, in theory, the instant that he does that is when I hit that spot to kill my predetermined 200s. I roll off the throttle, hit the brakes, and I still make the same run that I was going to make. I'm still 25, and I still end up dead on. But by manipulating the track position, I'm more likely to induce a mistake on his end. Like, he's not going to take 30 on his own, but if I feed him 20 of it, perhaps he's still a few thou under and I escape with victory. That in general is kind of the, the thought process, the idea behind the spot drop strategy and why it can be beneficial. So Justin, back to Jim's specific question, I laid out the, the, the basics, so to speak, but what about execution? Like, what does this look like for you? Well, first of all, I, I want to make it known too, that it changes with every single car. So like um, in Jim's question, he basically said, you're burping the throttle, hitting the brakes. Well, if I'm spot dropping, I'm absolutely doing it with letting off the gas and hitting the brakes simultaneously. It's not like to me, a spot drop, there's not much drop in just burping the throttle. Does that make sense? Like, I feel like you really need to, you really need to slow down and slow down in a hurry. And to do that, you're, you're definitely hitting the brakes. So letting off the gas, hitting the brakes. But, um, as far as how much you're holding to get there at the eighth mile, mile an hour cone, well, I think that really changes substantially with the vehicle. Um, the slower the ET vehicle, the more you can kill at that mile an hour cone. The faster the ET vehicle, I mean, if you're driving a 450 dragster, which, uh, I mean, you you drive one all the time, so you you probably know, I mean, what what is it uh, in the eighth and your 450 dragster? What's it worth? off the throttle, on the brakes, relatively aggressively, I'd say 15,000, something like that. Yeah. And, so, and to your point, if I do that same thing in my Vega going 640s, it could be 400s. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that in my Cobalt, if I stop at the mile an hour cone, um, it's it's typically like two and a half to three hundredths as opposed to 15,000, like you were in your dragster. So I think that it really depends on how quick your vehicle is. It sounds trivial, but how good your brakes are. I mean, uh, I can kill now. So I do more quarter mile in my cobalt, but I had one brand of brakes for years in my cobalt. I switched to another. I went from being able quarter mile at quarter mile at the mile an hour cone. I used to be able to kill 15,000s. I can kill 22, 23,000s quarter mile at the cone just because I have better brakes now. And it sounds so stupid, but I mean, it's just uh, all of that matters. So unfortunately, um, determining how much your spot drop is worth is very dependent on you as a driver, how hard you physically hit your own brakes. Like if you and I both drive your Vega, you might kill 400s. I might kill 35 because I don't hit the brakes as hard. So I think it's it's very um, specific to your vehicle, to your ET, to how much you hit the brakes. And all of that is very easily determined by just, by just practicing it. You know, doing it in time runs, doing it on a test and tune day, go and make a wide open run, come back and 
and uh, you know, obviously uh, look look at your uh, incrementals to make you know to figure out what you were going. But go down there and hit the brakes and see what it's worth in your car with you hitting the brakes. Main takeaway from this is like, unfortunately, what we're going to tell you is like there's a lot of trial and error in this. Like it's just going to take practice to determine what you're comfortable with, what you can do consistently and how your car responds to it. But as Justin mentioned, the good news is that you can literally practice this anytime. Like you don't need an opponent. You, you don't, it doesn't need to be an elimination run. You know, I mean, you can do this at any point. And it's really, it, I feel like the spot drop idea is like this black art that once you do it and attempt it, it's it's easier than it sounds. And let's be clear about one thing here too. Like, yes, I, I agree with Justin. Like I would advocate rolling off the throttle and onto the brake pedal, that this doesn't have to be like this super aggressive move. Like if you've never attempted anything like this and, and maybe you're a little bit intimidated by it, what I always say is like, this is really simple because let's assume that you're not say at a national event facility or you're not racing eighth mile at a quarter mile track what do you do as you cross the finish line now? Like you roll off the throttle and gently ease onto the brake, right? I'm basically advocating making that same movement, that same foot action 60 feet before or 100 feet before or whatever the case may be, right? It doesn't, we get caught up in this idea that if I'm going to drop, it has to be super late and it has to be super hard. And that's not really the thing. Like as long as your opponent doesn't know what's coming, they don't know that you're going to drop, it's really difficult to react to and actually do anything about. Like we laugh all the time about the racer that says, yeah, he went down and I caught the drop. Like that's not a thing, right? You, you don't, what, what you should say is, I knew it was coming and anticipated the drop. You know, when, when you do a good job beside something like that, because just like the laws of physics, we're going 140 to 170 miles an hour like when that opponent hits the brakes it's not like we can say oh he hit the brakes and then react to it before the finish line like, it just happens too quick yeah. so this idea that i've got to drive in real deep and then just pile drive the brakes and try to crash like that's that's just trying to crash right that's not necessarily trying to win the race um and and then the other part of this too is there's it there's as you go along like what i would what I would encourage Jim to say initially is, okay, Jim, let's drive to the mile per hour cone. Let's ease off the throttle on the brakes and see what that kills. And the reason that we use the mile per hour cone as a reference is really simple because it's at the same location anywhere you go, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that your spot has to be at the mile per hour cone, right? But that's what I always reference it off of. Like I'm going to drop at the cone or I'm going to drop a car length before the cone or I'm going to drop between the mile an hour cone and the finish line. You know what I mean? Whatever the case may be. And to that point, um, Justin, I feel like you're one of the best at this. Like, it, again, it sounds overwhelming at first, but the first step is to, you know, kind of pick a spot and try it and see what it kills. And then as you become adept and comfortable in that, and again, it's it's not as difficult as, as I think most people tend to make it sound, it's not only easy to kind of go back to that at any point, but it's relatively easy to basically add additional spots to the idea being that I'm comfortable holding a hundredth because I know where to get rid of that, I'm comfortable in two or three or five or whatever the case may be, and then the ability to change it up to where your opponents don't have any idea what's coming. Yeah, that's one of the things um, that I would like to mention that I think anytime we talk about 
any um, like, forget spot drop. I mean, just any finish line tactic is changing it up. And I, I mean, you mentioned that just a second ago, but I think it's very important to not just become a person that spot drops every run or that dials honest every run. Like I do think it is very important to constantly change it up. But as you mentioned, once you get one spot down, it is easy to add additional spots or to, to try to kill more. Hey, um, you know, I'm going to do it this set distance, you know, like before the mile an hour cone now. So that way I can kill more or maybe you kill less. And um, there's so many different options. The one thing that I always emphasize also is just when you're doing this and you're going to actually do it in eliminations is you have to be disciplined. If you're going two under and that race is close, you can't hold it down. Like you have to kill your 200s. And I know like we can kind of laugh about it, but I've done it. I mean, when I was learning, I've actually, you get all pumped up and you're in the race and you want to get to the finish line first. I mean, I know that sounds like Ricky Bobby, right? You just want to go fast, but I mean, seriously, you want to win. Like, but when you know you're going, when you purposely dialed up 200s or 300, whatever, you have to get rid of it. And even if you're going 100 slow and end up one above, you have to, you have to live with it. Like you, you just, no matter what, you have to be disciplined and you have to make sure you kill what you're holding. So we had a little bit of tech stuff, right? So this one comes from uh, another member of the Bracket Racing Elite, Benji Martin, up in the Northwest. He asks, uh, what are your thoughts on transmission temperature? I know there's different types of coolers, pumps, et cetera, but what does everyone find to be the most consistent? A lot of heat, no heat, a specific temperature. Um, I read someone on here mention a, a thermostat for trans. Again, this was a conversation with an elite, as you can see, it had 22 comments. So we talked about this a good bit. Uh, Justin, I love the way that you analyze data and kind of go the extra mile and thinking about how it impacts your car. So I'll throw it to you first. Like, what's your take on transmission temp in general? I think it's important. And I think that um, trans temp, and I think it's also good. And this is oil temp in general. I mean, your transmission fluid is just an oil. And I think that it's very important to run a good high quality transmission fluid that doesn't break down with temperature. And then that will make your window like your operating temperature window greater. That makes sense. Like, um, cause the, cause the fluid viscosity won't change with temperature. But that being said, I try to figure out my car, like what's the worst case scenario. So like my stalker, to be honest with you, it's your foot braking, no trans brake. It doesn't get crazy hot. The converter is a little on the tighter side cause it's a lower RPM motor and so on and so forth. The most I ever see like hot lapping that car, honestly is 130, 140 degrees. So that being said, I try to get it within 20 degrees of that because I know that I can always cool it down 20 degrees. Even in a hot lap situation, I can come back, throw a couple fans on it and knock 20, 30 degrees out of it, no problem. So my goal with TransTemp, let's say in my stalker, is to get it to 120 degrees when I warm it up in the morning. Um, I tend to actually get it a little bit past there because you know it's gonna cool off by the time you go to the lanes. And, um, and then once it's warmed up in the morning, when I roll into the lanes, on the way to the lanes, I might, you know, kind of foot brake it a little bit, bring it up and get some heat back in it. But it's very achievable to get to that 120 degrees all the time. Um, on the flip side of that, uh, like my dragster, that, I mean, it'll get 180 degrees, no problem. So I try to get it up to 150, 160, knowing that especially my dragster, the transmission's, you know, essentially out in the open, it's easy to get a couple fans on there to cool it off. So all of that being said, um, 
I, I, I try to get to a certain temperature, but then I also have really good cooling systems. So on all of my cars, I have a separate, I always refer to it as the B&M style cooler. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I think there's multiple manufacturers, but that's just what I've always called it. And I have the separate B&M cooler. It's probably one foot by one foot that has an actual shroud and fan mounted to it on a switch. And, uh, and I just make sure that that cooler, honestly, it, it's awesome. It cools really well and it's got its own dedicated fan and dedicated switch. And then that's what I do um, in those situations where you're hot lapping and, and the trans temperatures up. I just make sure to, once the temperature is above like let's say in my stalker, once it's above 120, I kick it on and the whole drive back to the pits, I actually leave the uh, engine running because the only way that trans fluid is circulated is with the engine running unless you have a, a different pump of some sort. So I always just make sure like I idle all the way back to the pits to keep that training fluid moving and cooling. Dangerous to, to, you can't really make a blanket statement on transmission temperature and the way that it affects like every combination. And the reason for that, at least my understanding of it is, is this, because you'll see some cars like people swear, hey, my car picks up a bunch when I get it hot, right? And, I, and it's due to transcend. You'll see others, like my car slows down. And the reason for that is relatively simple. Like as you heat up any oil, like you had said, Justin, it begins to thin down, right? And uh, thinner uh, oil makes less pressure. No different than when you start your engine at, on a 50 degree morning and at idle, it's got 100 pounds of oil pressure. And then after you do your burnout, you know, 30 minutes later with a bunch of heat in it, that same motor with that same oil has 35 pounds of oil pressure because everything's hot, right? Well, the same thing happens within the transmission. The difference being that as that fluid thins out, what it allows the typical torque converter to do is actually loosen up like not monumentally but you may see it you see this like say in a super comp or super gas application where you dead stall the throttle stop well if you dead stall the throttle stop 10 times in the pits the 10th one's going to be higher than the first one just because it's it's hotter right and it may be 100 rpm 150 rpm like it doesn't seem monumental but dependent on the stall of the converter in your car to the the power band of your engine like if the converter is a little bit on the tight side, typically when you get it really hot, it's going to loosen up and that's going to make the motor happier. Now it's going to be operating in an RPM range that where it just makes more power. Conversely, if the converter is pretty loose for your combination, uh, the more heat that you get in, again, it's just going to get looser. Typically that won't have a huge effect on ET. In some combinations, it could actually go the other way where that loosens up and, and again gets outside the engine's power band or torque band or whatever you may say, and the car actually slows down. So the effect that transmission temperature has on your specific combination may be different than your buddies or your neighbors or whatever the case may be. Where I've found personally that this seems to have a bigger impact, at least in my combinations, than in anything else that I do is throttle stop racing. And you think about it from this standpoint, it makes sense because if I take, say, the, the converter in my Corvette, it'll start to like 6,600, something like that. Well, if it loosens up and frees up to 6,700, like you could look at the dyno on the engine in that car and the, the horsepower and, and torque don't move monumentally from 66 to 67, right? Like that's typically a pretty happy window for a motor like that. But if you take that same discrepancy and move it from, say, 4200 to 4300 which is where you would be rolling on the stop that's a pretty significant difference and when you figure like in super gas 
I'm maybe on that timer running at that RPM for four seconds, that can make a big, big difference. And that's where I really see the benefit of uh, minimizing discrepancy in transmission heat. And just like Justin said, I approach this the exact same way. Like uh, the, the biggest kicker for me is something like my Corvette. Uh, a, the converter's pretty loose um, and it's, it's a door car, it's low to the ground, the transmission's surrounded, like there's just nowhere for that heat to go. So if I get in a hot lap situation for it, like it's not uncommon for it to see 200 degrees and, and have to cool it down relatively quickly for the next round. So where I would typically say in my dragster, like I try to pull in the water at like 150 because that's where I can always get it back to. My Corvette, I pull in the water at 170 because I know that's where I can always get back to. Now, on the first run of the day, that's a pain. Like I really have to think about, be conscious of building that heat. But I do that because I know that if I get to the quarterfinals and semifinals where I got to make two or three runs in an hour, an hour and a half, I know that I can maintain that temperature. And obviously I say hour, hour and a half, like that's NHRA competition at bracket races. Like I, I think at one point I made three runs in 10 minutes in my Vegas. So that, that becomes even more, uh, you know, important at that point. But I, I do, I approach it the same way. And just, you had mentioned Justin, like some little tricks for your combination. I'll share this too, like in a power glide application, it's not monumental, but it makes a difference. Like power glides build the most heat in high gear just because everything's locked up, the clutches are engaged. So on that morning run, like I warm up, I drive to the staging lanes, I pull through the lanes in high gear. On the semifinal run where I'm trying to keep heat out of it, I'll roll around in low. Like it just doesn't build quite as much heat. It's little things like that, but they add up and make a difference. Yeah, no, I think it does. And I think the other thing that can make a huge difference is the fluid. I. I don't know how many have noticed, but a lot of manufacturers of transmission fluid are actually racing specific transmission fluid or making different weights. Um, like I know ATI, I just saw an advertisement today for ATI. They have like several different weights, like a 10 weight, 20 weight or 30 weight tranny fluid. And I do think I've messed with that a little bit with my cobalt in the lighter weight fluid changes less. Does that make sense? But it's one of those things where your transmission has to be built for it and you know the guys that do my transmissions they know that i'm going to run a lighter weight fluid but then the way i look at it is if i only have a 10 weight in it what's the worst case it drops to a zero weight if i have a 30 weight and it drops to a zero that's a big jump but it's only going to drop to a zero weight from a 10 that's no big you know it's already water what's you know what's a little bit thinner water right so no, it's funny because like the the trend when I was a kid, everybody went to like that John Deere tractor hydraulic oil that looks like freaking tree sap. You know what I mean? It's just nasty stuff. But the idea was like you, it's harder to get it hot because it's because it's so thick, which is true. But if you run enough categories, if you race enough, if you go enough rounds, inevitably you're going to get it hot. And it's going to thin down significantly. So like, just like you, Justin, I, I tend to go to about the lightest fluid that I can run with the thought process that it just can't change viscosity very much. And like you said, I've, I've had better luck for that myself. Well, and I also have the mentality, right or wrong, that if it's harder to get hot, it's also harder to cool off. And uh, like I actually, when I first started racing a dragster years ago, we had this thing that B&M made. It was called like an EC canister. It was like this round, thin canister. And so the idea was it held like an extra four or five quarts of fluid. It would take longer to get hot, but now you've got to cool off four or five more quarts of fluid. Like it never, ultimately, I think that once it got hot, it was, it was harder to deal with than the time it took to get hot. So, you know, I mean, there's, I don't know, there's so many different ways to look at it, but ultimately I try to run, uh, I don't run an EC canister anymore. And I uh, also run a thinner fluid. 
All right, good stuff. I think we explored that pretty well. If if there's any piggyback questions on any of this, you guys weigh them in uh, in the chat, and like I said, we'll get all of that later. <clears throat> Let's jump into uh, reaction time. And a little bit, this is a fun question because I feel like it, it's got a little bit of reaction time and it's got a little bit of mentality, right? So this is from another elite member uh, from up in uh, Indiana, David Trivandi. David says, another reaction time question. I seem to have gotten better from practicing, which is a big part of what we do in elite, but later rounds I struggle. Specifically round four seems to be my trouble round. I tend to come up 25 or something worse. Sometimes I can feel myself getting tired other times it catches me off guard and I don't even realize that I missed it. If I start feeling tired, I usually eat something, walk around a little bit, which helps. But do any of you have some advice for those later rounds? Justin, again, I'll, uh, I'll throw it to you to kick off. Man, I, I'm going to forget the advice for the later rounds. I feel like on a question like this, I'm going to start with when, when someone narrows it down to like, I can't get past fourth round. I can't get out of the, past the semifinals, I can't get something like that. I immediately think it's like, it's become a mental issue. It's not a, a, a you know, like a, a fundamental issue. It's probably not that you're like, you have it in your head now, you can't win fourth round. And I know it's so hard, but you have to get out of your head. Like, I, I mean, if you're a golfer and you say like, I cannot get on the green on this drive, well, you're never gonna get on the green on that drive, right? You have to eventually get past that. So. Um, my first comment to David would absolutely be like, I, I realize he's using that as a timetable, but I hope that's not become an issue like mentally, like where you mentally just can't get past fourth round. Um, that being said, advice for later rounds, I, I understand, like I get tired. I mean, especially like some of these NHRA races, you know, we're racing days apart and, you know, like, especially if you make it to the Sunday show, you won't even run sometimes till two or th two or three in the afternoon when the pros have already run two or three rounds and then you finally get to run and you're sitting around all day with virtually nothing to do, just waiting to run. And it, it's very, I mean, it, it gets tiring mentally, you know, more than anything. And as crazy as it sounds, I try to do the opposite. Like um, instead of walking around and things like that, I tend to just rest. I mean, and not rest. Like I go lay in bed in the motorhome and fall asleep, but like I lay on the trailer floor and just relax for a half hour at a time or whatever, just, just something and try not to think about racing. Just stay rested, stay hydrated, drink a lot of water. And uh, that's how I tend to handle those situations. Specifically, you and I have talked a little bit about our own routines and how and it, it, I think it's different for every racer and like what really works for you. you know, there's some racers that just need to get jacked up you know for that particular round i know that's not your approach and it's not typically mine like kind of I, I feel like you were headed in that direction if you just want to kind of walk through your your normal pre-race routine and, and why you've adopted it well i feel like um my confidence on on driving the car comes from kind of my routine n not even in the car like i gain so much confidence um, in my driving ability from knowing I have confidence in my car, in my dial-in, making sure I have a handle on the weather, the wind, the track conditions, all of those things. And what I've learned for myself is the more that I have confidence knowing that I'm, uh, knowing that I know what my car is going to run, knowing that uh, I, I know what the headwind or tailwind is worth, you know, knowing all of these, knowing that I'm confident in my car, 
I spent a ton of time and put forth a ton of effort into having a really good race car. Um, and, and all of those things, if, if all of those are right, I'll tend to have confidence in my driving ability. I'll tend to have a better reaction time. If I haven't put forth the effort prior to the run to get my dial in right, or maybe to, you know, maybe I just glance at the wedding and say, ah, it's probably worth a hundred or so. Like if I don't get on the scooter and drive down to the track and make sure, like make sure I know and understand the wind or, you know, really look through my logbook and not just compare one run to figure out the weather, but compare three or four runs and really make sure I have a handle on the weather. Like if I don't do one of those things, then I will tend to not be as confident. I'll be up there trying to stage worrying about, well, man, is that wind worse? Maybe I didn't get the wind right. Or maybe I should have looked at another run. Like I'm going to be thinking about something else. And, and all of those things takes place before I even get in a car. And then fast forward to when I get in the car, like doing my burnout exactly the same every run staging exactly the same every run, making sure my water temperature is the same every run. All of these things matter. And what sounds crazy, but I'm concerned with all of those other things that when it comes time to like cut a light, I'm not, I'm not thinking the whole time. Like let's say from the burnout to the stage vaults, I'm not even thinking about, okay, I need to hit the tree. I'm literally thinking about like, okay, my water temperature is exactly where it should be. I just did the exact same burnout. I'm focused on doing the same burnout. The last thing I want to do is be pre-stage and be like, man, my water temp's five degrees warmer. Does that mean I'm going to slow down here? I don't want to have to worry about it. I, so I spend so much time focusing on the preparation for the round, the consistency in the, the procedure of the round, the, the burnout, the staging, the making sure my tires are right, all of the above. That by the time I stage, like I'm just confident and the tree comes down and you just hit it. I mean, it, it just, I don't know why, but it's like comforting for me, myself, you know. No, it's it's I it's cool to hear you explain it like that because my perception watching you is that it's it's almost robotic. But the way that you explain that, like you're just kind of going through a checklist, right? And it's not necessarily a, an emotion-based thing. Like you're you're building confidence just in routine. And I'll say my routine's similar. I feel like I I have to. Uh, I have to kind of level off emotions a little bit, but for me, it's never, I can not think of too many rounds where I look back and say, you know, I just wasn't up for it. Like, that's not usually the problem. Like I, I, I have a, there's an opponent in the other lane. Like I want to win the, the competitive juices take over. Like it's rarely, if ever a, a situation where I feel like I need to get myself pumped up. If anything, for me, like what I'm looking for is like a, a, a calm, comfortable level of focus. And the times that I have to kind of regulate that are the times that I'm feeling pressure for whatever reason, you know, and maybe it's a few deep breaths. Like if anything, I find myself bringing myself down just a little bit, kind of checking that more so than ever, like, oh, I got to get fired up. You know what I mean? But that, I think that's a little bit different for everybody. Uh, if we circle back just briefly to, to David's specific um, scenario here, Justin, I'm in agreement with you. I would say like 99% of the time, this is mental, maybe occasionally physical, you know, and just plain tired, you know, or, or um, not taking care of your body, whatever the case may be. But there's probably 1% of the time that there's more to this. Like it could be something mechanical. It could be something electrical, whatever the case may be. I'm curious in your experience, like if you don't think it's you in a situation like this, what's the first thing that you look for? I'm a bad person to ask. 
<laughs> you always think it's you. <laughs> I do always think it's me, and when I don't, I think me too, it's everything. Me too. Everything. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the guy that'll just put a whole new everything in the car just because. Like, I'm going to make sure I didn't miss the problem, right? <laughs> but unfortunately, <laughs> Like your react can be affected by literally everything tires transmission trans brake solenoid trans brake button bad ground i mean you literally can just start checking everything um but to pinpoint it i feel like you just have to start okay like it's fourth round what happens fourth round you run closer together was your trans temp hot was uh, the battery not charged up all the way do you maybe have a battery that's going bad like maybe uh, and, and that's something that you know I've seen so many times over my career, many people run two batteries and you'll have a bad battery, but because one is good, your voltage shows it's okay. You know, there, there's so many different factors. So I just would urge someone to, to try to pinpoint, okay, like, like besides that it's fourth round, like what else happens? Like, did you not get a full charge? Did you, it, did, did you, the tranny too hot? Was that, you know, what, what could have changed that fourth round to really affect it. Um, are you racing in a situation where you're racing like, uh, let's say afternoon into the night where the track gets cold, when the track gets cold, does it slip the tire? Um, you know, there's so, does it do a bigger or smaller wheelie because of the changing weather or track conditions, you know? So I would just start looking, starting with your logbook, right? Like that I look at every single day, <laughs> but like I literally start there and just what's the common denominator here? Like what is the common problem fourth round every time? And, uh, and that's that's where I would start to then start my hunt on what could be wrong with the car. Great advice. I feel like this is one of those topics that we could riff on for like an hour, but ultimately I want to get to all of your questions too. So let's move on to our last topic. And this one's kind of a fun one. This is more like real broad general race strategy. This one comes from Jeff Rigney, another member within Elite. And he's asking about a specific situation, but I think we could apply this to a lot of different things. What Jeff asks is when you double, uh, basically double enter, same car, same driver at an event, uh, do you put one entry in one lane, the other in the other, and stick to that until it changes, basically until you until you lose one entry or eliminate one? What are your thoughts on lane difference? I feel like this is such a, uh, a timely discussion because it seemed like for years at the highest levels of our sport, like whether it was the NHRA Tour or the biggest dollar bracket races, you could pretty much depend on there being little to no difference lane to lane, right? And, and you're just like, you mean, yeah, you want to make a time trial in each lane, but like, whatever, you know, I mean, you, you're not really planning on anything being different. But here within the last two months, it seems like every big bracket race has had a pretty significant difference lane to lane. Like, you need to know that it's, it's more than five thousandths of a second, you know, in some cases, closer to a hundredth of a second, maybe even more. Like, it seems really like valuable information at this point. So kind of what's your method for determining it? Well, first things first to be honest with you i have never actually doubled the same car at an event i've just never had that opportunity i mean i double at almost all the events i go to but it's in two separate cars um that's just kind of how the races have been out this way but um if i did i think i would put one car in each lane um and that being said like you mentioned only until the last couple months when it was kind of the talk you know like the, the, there's these big lanes discrepancies at these different events I mean, I've honestly, like, I mean, I just did it in Vegas. You know, we had the the national, sports nationals, divisional, whatever. And and uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was my cobalt. I didn't even make a run in the left lane until, like, the second or third. Like, I had made, like, 15 runs in the right lane before I made a run in the left. 
And when I made a run to the left, I didn't think about it. I just hit it. I mean, I was confident in the lanes. And I feel like for the last 10 years, I've been confident in the lanes. Like it really hasn't been an issue lane to lane. And I, I really just think, uh, I don't know. I'm going to blame it on 2020 because everything's been kind of messed up this year. Maybe that, <laughs> next year we'll go back and the lanes won't matter. But if I was doing it right now, to be honest with you, and I was doubled, I would. I'd, I'd, my first entry would be on the left. My second entry would be on the right. And at least – at least for time runs and maybe a round or two. And then I would just go to whatever lane was shorter. Like I, I'm not a huge, like I have to be in the right or have to be in the left. It kind of annoys me when I do pull in the lanes and there's like 47 people in one lane and two in the other. I just pull in the one lane with two. Like, so if you just want wholeheartedly what I would do, I would just, at some point when there was a favored lane, I just go in the opposite and I'd race. Biggest issue with being up toward the front in the longest line, because like, let's say that I'm the front car in the right lane and 50 people pile in behind me and nobody pulls in the left. You know what you're going to get? What I'm going to get beside me is one of two options. I'm going to get the strong or the stupid. No in between. And in your case, I see you rolling around the corner. Like it's usually Jason Lynch. Jason Lynch is the one that around the corner. Like, oh God, here we go. Right. But no, to, <laughs> to the point, like, I feel like this has kind of come full circle for me because when I started bracket racing and particularly when I started traveling, like just the technology wasn't what it is today. So it wasn't uncommon to go to a new track and there'd be a hundredth difference in lanes. Like I was almost more surprised when they were almost even than when there was a significant difference. So from the start, and it's really just continued with me ever since, like I've been kind of maniacal about making sure that I get down both lanes, particularly at a new facility or where I know something has changed since the last time that I raced there. And specifically to this question, what I try to do, regardless of whether I'm, I'm doubling, doubling the same car or not, is not necessarily like obviously if you get two time trials like we typically try to make one in each lane but more specifically at like these these bigger marathon big dollar races where a you probably don't get two time trials and b if you do they might be six hours apart so how much it's not like you've got a back-to-back -back a to b you know what i mean to know precisely what the lane difference is once usually in those situations i'll stay in one lane until i'm confident in where i'm at and when I've got the opportunity to kind of back to back, and then what I'll do is I would take any opportunity to switch on like a free round, a time trial, a, let's say, uh, it used to be really common where we would have first or second round buybacks. Like I won first round, so second round, like I'm getting through it no matter what. I would always swap lanes for round two, right? Just to get that extra hit. Same thing really in a, in a, in a buyback type round. Like if I've made five runs in the right lane on the weekend and I'm coming into first round on Saturday, like I may just run the left. And if it costs me a buyback, it costs me a buyback. But I kind of look at that as an investment in the future. Right. And I'll even do the same thing. Let's say on day one of a three or four day race, let's say that I go into fourth round and I've been down the right lane every time. Like I may just roll up in the left for, for fifth round or fourth round, whatever the case may be, with the idea being like it may hurt my chances slightly in this particular round if there is a lane difference. But I'm going to look at it as an investment not only in, A, if I win that round, odds are to win the race, I'm going to have to go down both lanes and then I know. Or B, even if it costs me the rounds, like there's two more days of racing left and to win one of those races, 
I'm probably going to have to know, right? So I'm probably more liberal than most in terms of like, I'll just make that switch just to find out, you know, and or, and, or prove it to myself occasionally. Um, all right, so good stuff. Um, we're going to get to a lot of your questions coming up shortly. What we've covered to this point is really, it's just a snippet of what our members enjoy within This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It's this level of insight, of introspection, exercise. It's what we do together on a daily basis. And I'll just share like our core philosophy within This Is Bracket Racing Elite is there are two pillars to success. The first being confidence, the second being understanding. And as a racer, if you're able to check, and I mean fully check both of those boxes, I'm sorry, one of those boxes, either one, confidence or understanding, if you can fully check one of those, you are going to be a good racer. You're going to be a winning racer. But if you can check both of those boxes, full understanding, ultimate confidence, you're not going to be a good racer. You are going to be a great racer. You can probably think of a good racer in your circle that has a real grasp on one side or the other. A racer that maybe doesn't lack for confidence. Okay, We all probably know someone that doesn't lack for confidence. But confidence alone, it only goes so far. You've got to have the skills. And I actually think that's really common. Like I can think of a lot of racers that I feel like find confidence in their complacency. And for a time, that works, right? Because confidence can do wonders. But over time, that turns into false confidence because you don't have the skills. You don't necessarily have the understanding to back it up. And conversely, like we, become, we can become so confident that we're not open to learning. On the flip side, you probably also know a racer that has a deep understanding of the game, who has put in the time, the work to develop the skills, but for whatever reason, lacks the confidence. Our goal is to help you develop both. And the hidden benefit to opening your mind, to striving to check both of those boxes is that it is a perpetually virtuous cycle. What I mean by that is the more that you strive to understand, the more that you learn, the more skills you can see that you want to implement on the racetrack. As you implement those skills, inevitably your confidence builds. As your confidence builds, you become more secure. You become more open to realizing what maybe you don't know and you want to learn more. And then as you learn more, you implement more skills. As you implement more skills, you, you, you build even more confidence and it just continues to perpetuate into this like snowball of success. If that sounds good to you, it sounds good to me too, and it sounds good to the majority of the members within our This Is Bracket Racing Elite community. As a member of This Is Bracket Racing Elite, you will surround yourself with similarly motivated racers. As a part of the community, you'll realize that in a lot of ways, we're all the same. We're all flawed. We're all working to improve in hopes of being just a little bit better tomorrow than we were yesterday. And so many of our members within Elite have enjoyed tremendous success. I want you to enjoy similar results to our most successful members. I want you to enjoy similar results to myself, to Justin. How can you do that? 
Well, our free resource coming up shortly, it's going to lay the groundwork for improvement in your own racing. It'll provide you with the foundation to begin that process of self-awareness, self-improvement. I have no doubt that this will help you tremendously. But if you're ready to take the next step, if you're serious about becoming the very best version of yourself behind the wheel, our unique membership program, This Is Bracket Racing Elite, can help you get to where you want to be. Luckily for you, enrollment has recently reopened. We are currently accepting new members for a limited time. What can you expect as a member of This Is Bracket Racing Elite? I'll share three things briefly with you here. The first is knowledge, right? Simple as that, just knowledge from myself, from Justin Lamb, um, Again, like I don't want to beat this into the ground, but we've combined for seven NHRA World Championships. The other part that I don't want to beat into the ground is that that's very one-sided. There are more his World Championships than mine, but let's just focus on that combined seven total, right? Uh, more importantly, uh, we understand your struggles because we've been there. And now we're openly sharing our experiences, our understanding with the elite community. But as I've shared today, like, Elite is so much more than just Justin and myself. Elite is made up of 400 plus racers. Now these are racers just like you, that you can bounce ideas off of. You can share wins and struggles. And I think most importantly, like realize that you're not a mess because you made this particular mistake. You're not a train wreck because you think this certain way about this particular subject we're more alike than you realize. And this group reinforces that like, it's not weird to struggle, that struggle is not failure. In fact, I would argue that struggle just presents a new opportunity to learn, a new opportunity to improve. While the community makes us realize that you know, we're all flawed, it also provides the unique opportunity to grow to grow both independently and together to become the best version of yourself on the racetrack. That's ultimately what I want for you. That's what Justin wants for you. That's what our entire community within This Is Bracket Racing Elite wants for you. And as a group, we will push you, providing the accountability that is a huge catalyst for success. Question for you, would you like to be more successful on the racetrack? I know that's probably the most obvious question that you've heard today. Who on earth is not going to answer? Yes, we all want to be more successful on the racetrack. Here's the truth. In order to get where you wanna go, you don't need a complete reboot. Okay, you don't need a 180 degree change in direction to get to the level that you deserve on the racetrack. But you could probably use a two degree course correction. In, in a game that is consistently decided by thousands of a second, that slight minor adjustment can make all the difference. And that's exactly what This Is Bracket Racing Elite provides. In this day and age, let's face it, our game is high stakes, higher stakes than ever. And you are all in. You're all in financially, emotionally, 
mentally, physically, you deserve to reap the rewards. Invest in yourself and allow This Is Bracket Racing Elite to help you become the best version of yourself on the racetrack. Enrollment in Elite is now open the cost, $99 per month. Due to immense demand, it is available just for a brief time. We're gonna close the doors on Friday. Enrollment won't be available again until summer of 2021. So take this opportunity, enroll now at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Thanks so much for sticking around. I know you have questions. Hang tight, we're gonna do our best to get to every single one of them. As promised, Jordan's gonna share the link now in the chat. Click this link for your free This Is Bracket Racing Master Course. This is special and exclusive to today's guests. If you go back to how we started this, we had one simple question for you. If you complete that exercise to pinpoint the area of opportunity in your racing program, the one specific facet of racing in which you think you can make significant improvements immediately, this off season, prior to taking the track in 2021. Click the link, share that with us, that area that you need to improve in. What we are going to do is send you our master course of trainings dedicated to that specific area that you pinpoint. That's 10 of our best lessons dedicated to exactly what you need to be working on. It's a $49 value. It is our gift to you free simply for being here with us today. All right, it's time for the good stuff. All right, Justin's gonna join me once again. We asked you early on to, to pinpoint that area of opportunity within your game. Here's your chance to take the first step. Explain, share with us your struggle. Pitch it out, question, topic, let us riff, whatever. Allow Justin and myself to provide some insight. In addition to specific racing-related questions, we'll also open the floor. We'll take any questions that you may have about This Is Bracket Racing Elite at this time. We've got a huge turnout in here tonight. I know that uh, Jordan's already tagged several questions for us already. Um, we're going to do our best to get to every single thing on this list. I don't have anywhere to be. I think Justin doesn't have anywhere to be. We're going to stick around as long as this takes. We're going to try to get to everyone. So let me open up the chat window again. Jordan, where do you want us to start? Ooh, okay, we got a bunch. All right, so how about this one? In a dragster, advantages of a round steering wheel versus a butterfly. I'm kind of a round steering wheel guy. How about you, JL? To be honest, I've gone back and forth. I All my cars lately have been round because I think it looks cooler. I don't know why. I feel like when you see a butterfly in a dragster, it looks like totally old school. Um, but I do think there's something to be said for how you can hold your hand with a butterfly. Like you can kind of rest it on top with your finger on the button as opposed to a round wheel. Your hand's kind of like open-faced. I don't know that it matters, but I think it's just what what's most comfortable to you as an individual. Yeah, I honestly, I think it's six to one, half dozen to the other. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think there's necessarily a benefit one way or the other. Um, I like you, I've done both. I think for probably the last decade, I've been on the indie style round wheel. But again, that's just personal preference. I don't think there's necessarily a huge uh, benefit one way or the other. Uh, Jason asks, what is the best way to figure out a throttle stop ratio? And what does throttle stop ratio mean for a beginner? Um, Okay, so 
I guess that there's this you could take this in a lot of different directions, but let's assume that you've got a happy combination that if you left the throttle stop timer alone in similar weather conditions and similar track conditions would repeat. Right. I think that's easier said than done. I, it's it's typically not as simple as bolting a throttle stop on your bracket car and being like, OK, I went 890. I just won't touch it. I'll go 890 again. Right. There's a little bit more to it than that. But assuming you get to that point, the best way to determine your throttle stop ratio. And I actually uh, implement this at just about every event that I go to super comp and super gas. Like I will make a base run and then I will make a pretty significant swing, meaning like two, three tenths in the timer typically, because the bigger swing that you make, at least in my opinion, the more accurate that ratio is going to be. Like if I try to alter my ET by one hundredth of a second, like I could move a hundredth of a second and 60 foot, like the wind could pick up whatever. Like if I try to move it a tenth of a second, 15 hundredths of a second, two tenths of a second, those factors are still going to come into play, but they're not going to completely throw out a whack the ratio that I developed from that. So I take a pretty big swing. And then again, assuming that it's in a similar weather conditions, I'll basically say, okay, like, look, I added three tenths to the timer and the car slowed down 15 hundredths of a second. Like that's easy math. It's two to one ratio. And like I say, not only would I recommend doing that initially, like I do that at basically every race for two reasons. Number one, to kind of validate the ratio. And like, it's not, typically going to move significantly from week to week, but it's nice to know that it's there. And then the other reason that I do it, particularly at, at a national event where things could be spread out over three, four days and you're subject to see pretty varying conditions is I'll try to forecast the future, like not real specifically, but say, I know that there's a cool front coming in on Saturday and it's Thursday that we're making these time trials. And so in order to be prepared for that, let, let's say on my first run, I go 888 all right, cool. Well, it doesn't make any sense for me to ratio check that and then go like 875 when the weather is going to get a tenth better. Like I'll ratio check that to the slow side so that A, I've got my ratio and B, I've got a run where let's say I went like nine flat on the 890. Well, when Saturday rolls around, like there's pretty decent odds that maybe it's a tenth faster, 1200s faster. And now that nine flat is 890 or 888. And what it does, at least in my mind, is now like I've got one variable instead of two. I just need to know how much the weather affects my car. I don't necessarily need to know exactly what my ratio is because like I have a run right here's nine flat. And I think it's 12 faster than that. So I'm really close. Like I just find some peace in that. But generally speaking, like that's, that's how I would go about that. Justin, you got any different insight there? The only insight that I would have is that I don't believe your ratio changes much from track to track as long as you aren't changing your dead stall from track to track. I think that when you're so like, I don't know that it's necessary. I, I often will check the ratio like that in a, in a, you know, with a big swing, like moving at 50 numbers, let's say. But the only thing I will say is like when I'm racing back to back weeks, whatever, going from track to track, as long as I'm not adjusting the, the actual amount that the throttle stop is opened or closed, um, your ratio typically won't change, even though let's say one track is 800 quicker than the last. If you keep that throttle stop closed the same amount, your ratio is going to stay consistent. So I don't think it's something you have to, because I know a lot of people, it is a confidence builder to be close to the number. So if you go out there your first run and go 882, you might not want to go put 50 numbers or take 50 numbers out. You're going to want to get close to 890. And I think that's fine. 
as long as you haven't adjusted your throttle stop dead stall from the previous event. It's right up your alley here, uh, JL. Uh, ask Justin about converting a bottom bulb door car to top bulb. Like, what would you recommend doing differently in terms of shock, setup, uh, et cetera? Don't do it. Bottom bulb's better. <laughs> um, I'm going to be honest with you. I think that uh, going from bottom bulb to top bulb can be much easier than going from top bulb to bottom bulb. And I don't really know that there's much you need to change because you basically now have a delay box to adjust your reaction time. When you're off the bottom, if you have a car that reacts, let's say on the fast side, it can be hard to stay green. Or on the flip side, we just had a question in Elite the other day about someone that has a car that reacts on the slow side and they're having trouble getting a react and they're debating like, do I go in deep or do I try to make the car react quicker? All of those things. Well, if you have a bottom bulb car ironed out and you put a delay box in, you just adjust the delay box up or down until you get to the number. So I think going from a bottom bulb to top bulb is fairly easy. And I don't really, you're, you adding a delay box, there, there should be no reason to change like the shocks on the car. That, that has no effect on you adding that delay box. So um, honestly, throwing a delay box in, just throw it in, go race. Um, I would obviously get away from if you're going from a, um, like a long throw trans brake button, there's no reason to have that and have that as a variable. So I would just go to a quick, act, a quick acting button, like a snap action button, just to eliminate the variable of the long throw button. Um, the only thing I would mention, I guess, if you're going from a bottom bulb car that is a foot brake car and you're now going to be with a trans brake and delay box, yeah, now you could, there, there could be a need going from true foot brake to trans brake. That would be a big jump. And you could need to adjust your suspension. You know, it's going to hit the tire harder. Um, you might need a little bit more aggressive shock setting in the rear to keep the tire planted. Or, you know, if your car already does big wheelies on the foot brake, you might need to tighten the front shock to stop it from doing as big, like too big of a wheelie with the trans brake. So that would be a, an instance where I think you would need to change. But if, if you're already leaving off a trans brake on the bottom and you're going to a trans brake off the top, it's, it's a pretty seamless transition. Wing when you're killing the tree. I often feel like I'm all over it and end up with a 40 light or a 50 light. Um, I'll take this like, this sounds like a, an oversimplified answer, John. But to me, it, it comes a lot, A, from experience, but I think more importantly, at least for me, has come from a real focus on practice. And that's not to say that I don't still occasionally miss the tree and still occasionally like don't know what the hell I just did, right? Like that still happens. But those instances get A, minimized in terms of they don't happen as frequently. And in terms of when I do have that outlier, instead of it being say 40, 50, maybe it's 20 or 30, right? And so that for me has just come from a real intense focus on practice and then specifically like how to practice. Um, one of the things that Justin and I do with an elite is really challenge members to, like I guess we put out, we don't call them games as much as exercises on the practice tree. And the idea being to try to create situations that simulate some of the emotion of real life competition, right? Because just sitting down in front of the practice tree and making 10 hits in a row on the comfort of your couch, like 
that's it's not going to say that that's not valuable, but that's nothing like strapping into your car, making one run with hundreds or thousands of people watching you and money on the line and a real live opponent in the other lane. So what we try to do is simulate some of that. And you can do that individually as well. And then a big thing that I'm a fan of, and I realize that it's not um, like possible or convenient for a lot of people, but I have gained immense value from actually practicing inside the race car. Um, I use my Porta Tree Next Gen hooked up to one of their full-size trees, and then I use what they call the trans brake adapter. It basically plugs in place of the trans brake solenoid in my car, and it allows me to use my button, my delay box on a full-size tree, and I go to the extreme like I suit up and strap in. And when I started doing that, that was probably the the winter after 2015. And I mean, I had had success prior to that, but the, the seasons that I strung together, say 16, 17, and 18, um, not so much that my success was that much greater than it had before, but my starting line performance was the best of my career. And I attribute that directly to really locking into a practice routine. Uh, da, 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 da. All right, it seems that uh, I have three to four lights with a tight spread, 10 or less, and then I run a, a light that's 20 or 30 slower, don't feel any different. Corey, hopefully we just kind of articulated on that. Justin, was there anything that you wanted to add there? Similar question. Uh, no, it's the same thing. Like, I really think it goes down, it, it all comes down to uh, preparing, and preparing starts on the practice tree. And I guess the big thing that I feel like we push at Elite is good practice. Like, sitting under your practice tree with a bowl of popcorn on your lap and just willy nilly hitting it, it like doesn't really teach you much, you know, like I think that not only from a me mechanic standpoint, like, like holding the button on your practice tree, the way you would hold it in your car all the way to, you know, your mental state and being focused like, like you would in the car. Like, you know, uh, I, I just think good practice is is very very necessary and in the long run will result in having tighter groupings and and less of those 20 to 30 outlier lights and uh i just think that including myself i spent many years practicing poorly i think just good practice is is what it takes i gamify that but that's not really where the benefit comes like, like i said more exercise than than fun and games, so to speak. Um, this is a good one. This comes from Chris. How does the spot drop work with a long nose car that can trip the beams when you get on the brakes? Uh, I'll let you speak to that because I feel like you've had to have fought that to some extent in your cobalt over the years. My cobalt, no, uh, because my cobalt sits so low. But okay. I have to raise my hand against those guys, like the third gen Camaros that have like a 10 foot nose, like, <laughs> and it's a pain. Um, unfortunately, like I haven't had my Copa will do it like once in a while, but the nose is pretty short. So if it dips the nose, it's not terrible. Um, but racing against those cars, it's a struggle to race against them as much as it is to race when you own it. Does that make sense? Like, uh, and I feel like, um, man, it's tough. Like, I guess when you're in it, you, you just have to know, like if you hit the brakes in the last second, like you just need to know to hit the brakes a little sooner. You can't, you can't drop the nose right in the lights because you will, you know, you'll, you'll actually ring up the ET quicker than, than you should have by dipping the nose. And you just have to know that and be cognizant of that. What's difficult when you're driving the stripe is if you're really trying to take it close against one of those cars 
with the nose that, that will take it, it kind of forces you to be a little bit farther ahead than you normally would be to ensure that you get there first. Because if they do drop that nose the last second, they, you know, it's, it can cost you a round for sure. The driver of the, the long nose cars, I, I think there's two ways to go about this. The first is to flip it and use it to your advantage. Like, just like Justin had said, like, um, A, if you're going to drop, it needs to be earlier where you can kind of relax the suspension and make sure that it's actually the front tire that, that trips the beam each time. B, like you could also use it as like your own form of nitrous. Like you know that you can dip the nose and your opponent doesn't necessarily. So perhaps it's, uh, you know, I'm dialed a hundredth hard and if I need it, I know that I can, you know, drop the nose just at the right time and do that. Now, obviously that's a little bit of practice and timing, things like that. The way that I would typically go about it is actually the opposite. I would and then have in those situations, like I just want to know no matter what, either my front end's going to trip the beam every time or my front tire is going to trip the beam every time. Like I don't want the, the potential variation. So in an instance like that, I'll either put like a, a, a snubber in the front suspension to where the, the, the front end can't easily come down or I'll hang some type of stripe taker off of the front nose to make sure that the nose gets it every single time, right? That way I know what I'm up against coming into the round and can kind of game plan then just like I would, you know, in a, in a, in a short overhang car, in a dragster, whatever. Like it's just one less thing to think about. Um, this is a good one from, uh, from Logan. Logan asks, when you're the slower car, are you looking over your shoulder like 24 seven or are you waiting until say the last hundred feet of the run? Um, how do you know that you're getting to the finish line first? And I'll take this one because for me, the biggest key to successfully driving the finish line to really even like knowing what happens at the finish line is to gauge the rate of closure as early in the run as possible and then as often as possible. And for most of us, I think we would agree that that's simpler as the faster car because it's all in front of you. Like you can basically, without turning your head, you can see your opponent, you can see the finish line, and you can see the gap begin to close as you roll up on them. As the slower car, I feel like that rate of closure is every bit as important. But now we've basically got two things to look at, one behind us, one in front of us, right? And I'm one, like, I, I know that there are several successful racers that have successfully used mirrors. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just learned looking back, right? And, and physically turning my head and putting my eyes on my opponent. And for me, the earlier that I can do that in the run, and then the more often that I can do that as we approach the finish line, the better gauge I can get of that rate of closure with the whole, the sole idea being that a uh, hundred feet before the finish line, I want to make one of three determinations, either number one, if we both hold it to the floor, like I'm going to get there first. Number two, if we both hold it to the floor, that dude is going to pass me. Or number three, if we both hold it to the floor, like it's going to be really close. But the point is the earlier that I can make that decision on the racetrack, the more time that I have to do something about it. And my fear in like, if you're just going to strictly concentrate on, I'm making a good run in my lane until a hundred feet from the finish line, and then they should be here. 
like what happens when they're not there right you've got this instant of indecision and you don't know how quickly they're closing and you're just guessing whereas the earlier that you can put eyes on that opponent the more often you can put eyes on that opponent the more you can basically begin to see what's going to happen before it happens and and do something about it the one thing and i think more times than not people are intimidated getting chased and i think that the reason they enjoy chasing is because the race is quote in front of them right so ultimately as you're chasing you can see the rate of closure the whole entire run from the time you leave the starting line you have your eye on that opponent and you can see that rate of closure driving from in front is no different you need to see that rate of closure so the quicker and longer amount of time you can see the car that that's chasing you you can develop that rate of closure no different than when you're coming from behind so i i just feel like the key to the top end whether you're in front or behind is that rate of closure you just need to turn around and basically the whole run to see it when you're the slower car as opposed to when you're the faster car it's just right there you know I agree completely. Good one for you. This comes from Paul. What bottom ball button? I'm assuming this is a trans brake, long throw trans brake button. What button do you like the best? Uh, the Terminator button that Beyondo sells. Um, I've tried a, a lot of different buttons on the practice tree. Um, a few, I actually drove a comp car with a different brand of button a few years ago. And uh, without a doubt, I like the Terminator button. I think that uh, Pete and Sal have put like a ton of time and effort into it. Um, I like many of the features, like the fact that the spring shielded, the fact that the uh, the actual shaft of it is on a, it's got like a slot or like a keyway kind of system to where like it can't rotate. Like it, it just, to be honest with you, I think 99% uh, of the drag races I've won in my career, uh, you know, bottom ball with a transmit have been with a Terminator button. I have so much confidence in it. It's consistent over long period. I mean, I've had the same button in my Cobalt for years. Like it just, it, it's, it's a, uh, it's just a very good, durable, consistent button. So that's what I stick with. That particular product so much. Like that's one of our featured endorsement products on This Is Bracket Racing. Uh, Jordan, if you get a chance, like you could include the link to that page. I'm not trying to sell you guys anything, but Justin did like a five minute video explaining like everything that he just talked about and more as to what he uh, why he prefers that button, why, why he feels like it's been so instrumental to his success. Um, JL, we've got a couple of, uh, of fluid-related questions back to our, our tech segment in the uh, in the webinar. Uh, Joel asks, uh, ATF or uh, versus Type F fluid? Um, I, I feel like it's again, it's like a, it's like a, it's it's your tranny builder kind of question, you know. Um, I just kind of leave it up to them. I know that Type F has always kind of been like the go-to for some reason for racing. Um, it's kind of what I ran forever. And a lot of these fluids that I'm seeing now that are built like manufactured from like a racing oil company, they will be like a type F 20 weight or a type F. I don't know the specifics of it. I have no idea. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, in my cars, I ran type F for years. And recently I switched to what's like a Dextron six, which is like a modern GM fluid because it's a full synthetic fluid. And it is less susceptible to changing with temperature. Like it's got a much, much higher, like, I don't remember the numbers off of my head, but somewhere in the range of like, like type F breaks down at like 250 degrees and like Dextron six breaks down at like 500 degrees. But that being said, can I sit here and tell you to like put Dextron six in your tranny? No. I mean, you're going to have, I, I feel like that's up to your tranny builder. 
mine just happens to be okay with it. So that's why I use that product. But, um, and, and I just, what I learned is that using like the Dextron six is it was almost like a lower viscosity, full synthetic fluid. So it didn't change with temperature as much. And I saw more consistency across different trans temps. So like, that's just why I use it, which is now what they're producing in a type F they make like a, like a full synthetic type F 10 weight. Well, it's probably kind of like what I'm using. I'm just using something that I can buy over the counter and I've been using it for a few more years that they, you know, long before they came out with these different weight fluids. When kind of switching gears um, to actual engine oil, uh, Daryl asked, like we talked about transmission temperature, what about the effects of engine oil temperature? And I'll take this to like, uh, let's preface this similar to what you said about transmissions, Justin, in, in that I would always defer to your engine builder, right? Because particularly the engines like bearing tolerances are often built with a certain weight of oil in mind. As a general rule, I tend to believe, and at least in my experience, to see what Justin has to say here, I haven't seen as wide a discrepancy with this on gas, but particularly on alcohol, I'm a pretty big fan, again, assuming that your motor can take it, your general builder is comfortable with it, with running a, a thinner oil. Reason being exactly the same thing that we talked about in the transmission, particularly with an alcohol motor, it's difficult to build heat initially to kind of break down a thicker oil, but eventually you will build enough heat to do that. The reason that I, I explain this, like I had always just run a, a 20, 50 weight oil in everything that I run. I still run that in my the majority of my gas motors. That's what I'd always run in the little 350 in my Vega on alcohol. And for the first year or two that I had the car, like the first run of the day, regardless of what I did with my warm-up routine, like whatever, the first run of the day was a throwaway. Like I would pick up a hundredth and a hundredth and a half on the second run, and then it would just stay there all day. Car was really good, but the first run was always slow. And I was actually, uh, I can't even take credit for this. I was sharing that with, uh, with John Kyle at APD one day. And he just out of the blue, he's like, what oil are you running? And I thought this was like a typical John Kyle conversation where we're just completely going down some rabbit hole that has nothing to do with what I just told him, right? And he's like, no, 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 like what oil are you running? And so I told him, he's like, put like a straight 30 weight in it and that'll go away. Like, what? He's like, yeah, just run a thinner oil. That's the problem. Like you have to, no matter what you do warm up wise, it takes one run, you know, like full load under power to break down that oil and then it's good. If you just put like a straight 30 in it, it'll be great all the time. And I did, and immediately that first run was what the next run was. Like that made all the difference in the world. So that's that's kind of my experience and history there. You got anything to add? To run the thinnest oil that my engine builder will allow. Does that make sense? Like I just try to run, yeah. like, I mean, there's times like I know people with like a, like my bracket car has a 615 20 degree motor in it. And there's like a whole ton of people running 2050 and I'm running like 520 in the winter. Like I'm not even in the ballpark of what they're running. And I, it's just because I don't want it to change run to run in, in particular on a hot lap in the summer, I'll run like mm -hmm. 1030. I just don't, uh, I'm not a big believer in the really heavy um, oils. I just think they change too much with temperature. Mike asks, what about mental stability? Um, and the, 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 what he shares is thinking about not thinking is still thinking. <laughs> How do you avoid that? I always feel like you've got an interesting take on mentality because like I say, I feel like your approach is, is more robotic. I'll, I'll throw it to you first. Well, I feel like it kind of goes back to what I talked about earlier where it's just all routine for me. Like I don't, 
man, I can't tell you the last time I staged up and was like thinking about like, okay, I need to hit the tree or okay. I need like, I, as long as I'm very well prepared and I've put forth the effort beforehand, I guess I just tend to go, there's like, there's three bulbs up there and I got to hit one of them. Like most of the time it's the bottom one and I just do it. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but I have a hard time like explaining what I do. I just, I'm so focused on everything else that as long as I've put in the time on the practice tree long before the event, I mean, I don't hit the practice tree in the pits at all. Like once I leave for a race, that's it. I don't use a practice tree, but I've put forth the effort at home to practice, to build the confidence in knowing my spot on the tree and knowing, uh, you know, how to hit the tree and, and, and all of the above. I've got confidence in the way I have the car set up for reaction time, whether it be a delay box or, you know, let's say bottom ball. I, I know I have my tire pressure set and my button adjustment set and my launch RPM set to like, like I know like if I'm hit it, I'm going to have a good light. And, and if I know all of that, at the end of the day, like when I, I mean, there's times I'm pre-staging and I'll like double check the flag down there, like make sure the wind hasn't changed. And I, and I come back, I finish bumping in and I hit it. And I, I guess it's, uh, for me, it's so much the, the quote homework, the, the effort prior to the event, all of those things combined that when the tree comes down, there's, you know, if it's the top bulb, I, I let go then. If it's the bottom, I let go then. I just, I don't know. trying to not control but but be aware of all of the variables so like say you know pulling up under the tower my mind is racing you know i'm thinking about my opponent i'm thinking about what i need to do i'm i'm rechecking the weather i may be glancing at the flag you know double checking every every gauge in the car etc cetera, etc cetera. like just on on overload when i pull into the water and this is something that i maybe to some extent comes comes naturally but like this is something that i've really worked to rehearse and just like justin said the for me it all comes back to routine and part of my routine is self talk right and it's not necessarily to build myself up and be like you're you're the best it's not that it's more along the lines of getting to the point that once all four of the little lights come on right once i'm staged it's like trance-like to where there's there's not much going on and how that is has been drilled in is just through drilling it in like i go through that process whether it's through like mental imagery pre-race or specifically in the practice sessions that i talk about like i really try to break up practice and kind of go through say from burnout on each run and go through that i'll physically like you've probably seen videos of me in the car like i'll i'm pre-staged i double check there's been low gear i pump the brake pedal you know with my foot i stage and, and and set the button like and within that i'm also going through the the mental checklist and the kind of mental routine cadence the the things that i say to myself are the same things run after run after run and practice after practice after practice and in doing that like there just becomes a comfortability with that to where i don't necessarily have to think about what i'm going to do next like it's been drilled into where i can kind of go on autopilot you know it can become as robotic as we can become um so that to me is kind of the answer like it's not necessarily thinking about quelling those thoughts or thinking about thinking this certain thing it's just getting into that that comfort zone of being knowing like whatever the stakes are whatever the situation is what i'm about to do is something that i have done 
thousands of times and practiced tens of thousands of times, let's just go execute it once more. Um, what else we got? I switched from an old analog delay box to the little wizard. I seem to have lost some consistency. Is button quality more important with a digital box? Um, wow, I don't know that I have a, a, an answer for that. This one comes from John. Um, when I made that switch, it was like, it was long enough ago that I don't think I was near as precise. I don't think racing was near as precise as it was today. So I want to say like, no, but I don't know if there could be anything to that or not. You know, uh, you know the last time I used an analog box? Never. <laughs> I'm the wrong guy to ask. I'm too young, I think. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, the more that I think about that, like, I feel like, and I'm not like tooting my own horn here, but I mean, you could just look across the board, like the consistency across the board in today's bracket racing would lend me to believe that there's there's no um, negative effect to a digital box. And I don't know that like button sensitivity could be significantly different. I, I don't know. To your point, Justin, like if you want to go back, the first delay box that I owned was not only an analog box, it was a three-digit Mazir. Like back in the day, Mazir offered a delay box that, and, and that, you know, way back in the day, this was before my time, but I bought this thing at a swap meet, you know, it was like a $50 delay box. There was no need to have one second in the delay box. Like if you had nine anything, like you were lightning fast with a fast car, right? That's how far this stuff has come. So yeah, my first three-digit Missouri, it wasn't long into my career that I got like the first K&R, you know, that old gold box that looked like a shoe box thing. Uh, I had a bunch of those, but yeah, I did. I did have a Missouri three-digit at one point. Um, I befriended Peter early in my career, so I always had like the latest you know like it was a mega 450 or whatever but like my first delay box was a mega 450 and i and i right. think they had a lot of version i mean they had a 350 a, i don't even know they had many series before that i i mean i started with the 450 so um okay we had just a uh paul asked a similar question to chris earlier with a, a long nose front end driving the finish line stripe takers so we'll check that one off as well um Clyde asked, how can you figure uh, what a headwind's worth on, say, a 10-second car for ET? This is pretty open-ended. This is something that we've talked about a lot. I feel like headwind, uh, like there's a little bit of a black art to it, but I don't, given what you race and where you typically race it, Justin, I don't think there's anyone more qualified to tackle this. Yeah, but it, it's kind of a, it, what kind of car? I mean, are you in a 10-second station wagon or are you in like a 10-second Cobalt? Because like my cobalt, uh, you know, let's just say it's probably going to be, I don't know, going slowing it down a second and a half is probably going to be, uh, I don't know, probably four mile per hour, a hundredth, where like a station wagon, a 10 second station wagon is probably going to be two and a half mile per hour, a hundredth. You know, I mean, it's going to be affected a ton more by wind. A 10 second dragster is going to be six miles an hour, a hundredth. Like, I do feel like it's very open-ended and it's obviously very much a product of it. Like, is it truly a dead headwind? And I know this is like going off on a tangent a little bit, but like, depending on the track, like Vegas, people come to Vegas for the first time. And I mean, Vegas literally goes like, I don't even know, 30 degrees uphill once you go through the finish line. So you go through the finish line and there's this big hill. Well, that hill blocks a good portion of the headwind because it's such, I mean, the shutdown area is a half mile long or whatever it is. And 
and it's way higher. So like a headwind doesn't affect you in Vegas as much as it does at a track with no hill after the finish line. So, you know, it's so dependent on like where you're racing, what kind of car, is it aerodynamic, all of the above. Um, so just for example, like me going from my, um, my, my, I used to have a, a 70 Camaro stock limiter car that went like 1070s, 1080s. And let's just say straight headwind at an average racetrack, right? With no hill, no nothing, just straight headwind at an average racetrack. It was like, you know, three mile per hour per hundred, three and a half per hundred. Going to my Chevy Copo, it's one second quicker. So instead of going uh, 1070s, it goes 970s, much more aerodynamic. And it's like five miles per hour per hundred. So it's just, it's total, even though it's only a second of ET difference, I'm sure that added horsepower helps it through the headwind, but I also think the aerodynamics makes a big difference. To your point about just being aware of the surroundings too, I'll never forget, because I know you've been there, so you, you can uh, attest to this, in Great Bend, Kansas. And we have this, I tell this story all the time because it was like the most monumental weather wind swing I'd ever seen from one day to the, to the next, right? But we had, it's like a 20 plus mile an hour headwind all through qualifying. And then first round, it's 30 degrees cooler and there's a 15 mile an hour direct tailwind, right? And I remember Jeff Lopez was with me and we're both freaking out like, well, what, um, what in the world's going to happen here? So he walks up to Gary Stinnett in the staging lanes and says, Gary, like, I don't want all the answers. I, I don't, I you know, I mean, I, I know you've worked a long time to, to get to where you are, but just for the wind, like, what do you attribute to the wind? And I'll never forget. Gary just looks at him and looks at him and goes here. And you just look and like, it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. It feels like if you look one direction, you see Nebraska. And if you look the other direction, you can see Oklahoma. I mean, like, it's just flat forever with nothing in the way of anything. And he's like, here? A lot. <laughs> There's nothing to block it. You're going to catch all of that. This is pretty crazy. Um, and you can look it up to like verify exactly what it was. But Stinnett was racing somewhere this year. I think a national event. Loses early. Goes to Great Bend. So Great Bend on the first two days was like 80 degrees and a headwind. Same thing you're talking about. Sunday, which was first round, was like 60 degrees and a tailwind. And he literally gets mad, like loses – kind of irritated with, I think he lost like the St. Louis national or something. I don't remember drives all the way to great Bend for first round. And he's within like two hundreds. Like he it's nine Oh five index. I think he went like nine Oh three and wins first round. And I'm telling you the average run was five to seven hundreds off. Like they were all over the board and freaking Stinnett rolls in there. Cause he just has raced there his whole life and he just knows, you know, right. It's pretty funny. Um, all right. So Oh, this is a good one from Mike. Um, where would you suggest putting your O2 sensors when using a uh, an evac system? So here's the – I don't actually have um, much experience with an O2 with an evac, but I would assume that the same principle would hold true. So like most people mount an O2 in, in a collector, right, which for the average bracket car is fine, right? It's actually probably best because you're getting some collection of – the four cylinders on that bank, right? So you're getting an, an average reading, so to speak. The problem that I've run into personally with mounting an O2 sensor in the collector is in superclass racing because when the throttle stop closes, you lose so much exhaust pressure that typically for an instant, that collector mounted O2 sensor will actually get a breath of fresh air. It's like it's sucking in outside air. And what you'll get then is a dead lean reading, which is A, obviously not accurate and B 
perhaps comes at like arguably the most critical juncture of a throttle stop run where you really want to know the air fuel when the throttle stop closes. Like that's, that's really the biggest tuning aid. So what I've gone to on my personal cars is I actually move the O2 sensors up into a primary tube. I usually mount them like uh, eight to 10 inches off of the, the header flange, uh, you know, that, that bolts to the head. And, um, you could put those in all eight cylinders if you wanted, but that can get relatively costly. I've had several members put a bung in all eight cylinders and just move the O2 sensor around. Um, I usually just have one on each bank, and that allows me to get a more accurate reading, uh, particularly in throttle stop racing. And then for this particular uh, riddle, if you will, from Mike, I would imagine that the EVAC causes similar kind of harmonic disruptions and you're getting um, you know that sucking back into the motor I would assume that that could have a similar disruption and I have not seen any negative effect to just placing those O2 bungs into a into a primary tube of a single cylinder no I agree I uh, on my door cars I do have all eight just because mm -hmm. then I can tune in each individual cylinder if if necessary but um, the, the biggest thing even if you're going to put it in the collector I would just try to get it as far toward the primary tube, like you just wanted to get it away from that evac tube because it's going to ultimately be putting oil into the exhaust in a way. So if you can put the evac tube like all the way at the end of the collector and then move the O2 sensor as close to the primaries as possible, that might work also. But I just think inevitably to be safe, I would just pick a primary tube if you just have one and just, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe talk to India, but I know like certain engines, like tend to have like a lean cylinder. So I would probably tend to put it like, if you had to pick one, pick the lean cylinder. That way, you know, you're safe on all the others. Does that make sense? Yeah. I agree 100%. Uh, Ron asked, kind of getting back to the, the transmission temperature discussion, how close do you feel the transmission temperatures have to be when staging in order for your car to be consistent. This kind of gets back to what we talked about earlier. He asked, do you know how much temp it takes to change ET a hundredth of a second? Like, I think that's a really loaded question depending on the, on the combination for the reasons that we touched on earlier. Um, just, I'll throw this to you. Like I'm pretty maniacal about this. Like uh, how, how, how tight a window are you trying to get in, uh, you know, pulling into the water box or pulling in staging? I feel like I've put forth a lot of effort, to make the transmission fluid and engine oil for that matter, not matter to a certain extent. Um, if I'm within 15 or 20 degrees, it's fine. Like I see zero difference. Um, and I think it's just a combination of, you know, running like a synthetic tranny fluid that's low viscosity. And, and it, once it's above, you know, let's say like my drag, once it's above 150, if it's 150 or 180, honestly, I see zero difference, zero. Um, so I'm probably not as diligent as I'm put it this way. I'm more diligent in making sure it's hot enough. I'm not always super critical on like, if it's 10 degrees too hot, it is what it is. And I don't worry about it. I just stage up and, and, and put forth the, the confidence that it's going to be consistent. Yeah. Similar. Like I said, I'm pretty maniacal about, and my number is what is it when I pull into the water? Right. So like, and typically, as you said, that that number i make it high enough like i'm i'm trying to duplicate to replicate those late round scenarios so more often than not i am building heat to get to that point right but specific to what you had said in those late round scenarios to where let's say for whatever reason like maybe i've messed up maybe i've put too much heat in it and or i just can't cool it enough in the in the late back to back rounds 
like there is nothing that I can do about it at that point. Like there is, it's not necessarily worth worrying about. I looked at, I pull into the water and look down and it's 20 degrees hotter than I wanted it to be. Okay. Like you just have to disregard that and go about your business and assume that there's no difference until a post run. And then when it throws out that run and be like, okay, well, why was I hundred slow? Like that's a note in the log book. Like I was really hot trans temp. And if that happens a couple of times and you see a trend, then you can do something about it, right? Then you can preemptively say, okay, it's hot. I can't cool it down and it's going to change this amount. Or back to your point, Justin, really kind of take a broader view and examine, okay, why does that make so much of a difference? Why is that so critical? And how can I minimize that? You know, whether that's getting the transmission hotter, perhaps going to a different style fluid, a different style cooler, whatever. Like how can I, and, and I feel like that's what Justin's better at than really anyone that I've ever been around is really taking that step back to analyze like, okay, this happened. Here's my hypothesis as the why, how can I make it better? Like that's just seems like a perpetual process. Do you keep a, a book on opponents to that you see reg, regularly? And if so, what do you document? No, I don't, to be honest with you. Um, I, I kind of have the approach this day and age that everybody, everybody's better at drag racing. I mean, let's be honest, like even from five years ago, from 10 years ago, and everybody is capable of making a great run. Everybody's equipment's better. Everybody has better tool. I mean, like, honestly, this sounds corny, but like we're to blame for some of this. Like, I mean, we, like we make people better at drag racing every single day and everybody's getting better. The tools are out there. The knowledge is out there. Um, the equipment's out there. Every Everybody is so good and so capable of making a great run that just because the guy was 50 the last three times I raced him, 50 on the tree, he's capable of being 10 right now. And I try to, it, it, like, it, it, it almost, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I might make a mental note. Like, uh, you know, like the last three times I raced this guy, he spot dropped 300s, and I might just be ready for it. But at the end of the day, I need to make a great run regardless of who's in the other lane because that's just what it takes these days. So I'm not one, like I don't keep a, notes on it. I don't, I mean, I might keep mental notes for myself, but that's it. Because I hadn't thought about this in years. When I was just starting out, I did this. Like I had a three ring binder and I was maniacal about, I don't know that I necessarily did it post run, but definitely like post event. Like I think this stayed in my room at home. Right. And I would, I would jot down, like I ran so-and-so third round. He staged first, he staged last, he ran the right lane. Like, and I was going to compile all of this data. And ultimately what I realized is like, it doesn't really matter who stages first or last. It doesn't really matter what lane we run. Like I got to figure out how to, how to win in any of those situations. Right. I, and and I and I've gotten away, like I said, it's two decades ago or more. I've gotten away from keeping that book. I do keep the mental notes. Like I, I have a really good memory, specifically of the rounds that I've lost. Like I rem I tend to remember how you beat me. You know what I mean? Um, and and try to use that going forward. And in this day and age, like like I say, I'm not necessarily worried about tendencies and staging or lane preference, whatever. Like. But I do like to come into a round with a general knowledge of what I think my opponent, what I think my opponent's typical strategy is as we approach the finish line, right? And in this day and age, um, 
forget, you know, the, that mental notebook, so to speak, like in this day and age, oftentimes, like you can just do that with the actual data, like, you know, your live timing data. Like I can see exactly what an opponent's running. And here's what, like, I, we've talked about this so many lead. This is more applicable, I think, to super comp and super gas racing where my average opponent is going to do something at the finish line. Like it, there's just more creativity, more people are holding, like whatever. It's the nature of that type of competition. What I like to know is if I show my opponent that they cannot get to the finish line first, what will they do? Like, will they drop? And typically, and we're all creatures of habit, like typically if someone will drop in that situation, there's like a go-to, like they'll usually kill about the same amount, right? So I like to know not only like, are they gonna hold the floor or are gonna hit the brakes? If they are gonna hit the brakes, how hard are they gonna hit the brakes? Like, what do they normally kill? And that way I can kind of anticipate that going back to the, the previous discussion. So I, I always feel like, I guess it's an obvious statement, like I do better on the test when I know the answer's coming in. So I, I'm kind of crazy about prep in that regard, particularly in that type of racing. Now I do keep the mental notebook, but no, it's, uh, I have done that, but it's been, it's been several years since I actually kept a physical, you know, notes on notes on opponents. Yeah, I'm also, and to your, I, I think it's got diminishing returns nowadays because everybody is like the games just changed so much. And particularly when we go bracket racing, like there's just not as much room typically for uh, creativity. Like, Usually, most most racers are going to do the same thing round after round after round. Right. The only thing I will say is, as far as like a notebook, I don't keep, but I do spend time when there's a live timing situation researching my opponent, and especially it's even easier when you're running um, like stock and super stock, like I do most of the time. You're dialing in, and and I can see like I to be honest with you, like there's a lot of times when like I could literally tell someone, I mean, I don't, but I could tell someone before that you just completely misdialed. Like you can't run that, you know, like I just, so it's funny. Like I absolutely do the research and, um, and I actually note down before the run, I have it right in the note section of my logbook. What I like, what my opponent went the previous round, what I think he can go now, all of the above. Right. And so I put, um, effort into that. I just don't necessarily have like a notebook of people I've previously raced. Blaine asks, uh, I've become relatively complacent in taking like 20 stripe. How can I break the complacency? Hmm. Um, man, I don't know. Uh, I think, uh, I don't know how I'd answer that, Luke. What, what do you think? uncomfortable because you continually get away with it you know like you're you're running a, a class where maybe you consistently have the reaction time advantage and like 20 is fine but you know that you're capable of being better and maybe it's just like i feel like i've killed plenty you know but my car sped up a bunch you know like in that instance like i think it's really easy to to focus on the wrong thing like if you don't think you can go under and you kill two hundredths of a second but you break out and you take 20, it's really easy to beat yourself up and say, man, I should have made that closer. In reality, like that's not why you lost. Why the hell was your car going so much faster than you thought? You know what I mean? Like in reality, like you kind of made a textbook run, you, you know, like you killed more than you thought you should, should need to kill and you comfortably got to the finish line first. Like there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. So I would A, make sure 
to accurately pinpoint the the reason for a, a lack of success if there is a lack of success. And then B, if it's like a complacency thing, most of that typically when you take too much stripe is rooted in the fear of giving it back. And what I would say is like, just force yourself to to break it, like force yourself to maybe hold more or whatever, like the, the plan for today and do this at some race that, you know, is not like your biggest race of the year, right? And I don't want to say a race that doesn't matter because there's no races that don't matter, but, you know, a lower level event and just say my goal for today, like I'm never going to take more than a hundredth. And probably when you lose, it's going to be because you gave it back and like, okay, like that's where that, that line is, you know what I mean? But that aggressive mindset is going to, to serve me going forward. Um, all right, so we've got a bunch of questions here. This is good stuff. Um, all right, when using a practice tree, this one comes from Jerry. Um, how do you calculate rollout for your car? I'll take the top bulb portion of this and then I'll let you handle the bottom, Justin. So top bulb, the rollout in your practice tree is largely irrelevant. Like it just doesn't matter. Like it, the delay box number in your practice tree match the delay box numbers in your car. Like just put the delay number in and then adjust the rollout until you're seeing your typical reaction times. But in big picture, it doesn't matter. Like what we're practicing is consistency. So it doesn't matter if that rollout says 100 or 400, right? Like you're just trying to group runs together. Now it becomes a little bit more critical on the bottom bulb, like having a general idea so that you're not practicing a spot that, you know, your car is not capable of hitting. And that's just where I'll let you riff on that. Yeah. And I think on the bottom, it's, it's very much the same though. Like there's no way to calculate, so to speak, your, uh, your, you know, your needed uh, rollout. And the reason I say that is, I mean, you have your human error combined with the vehicle reaction time. I mean, that's what your rollout's going to be. The only thing I would say is like, like, I mean, in general, I think you could say that your rollout uh, um, off the bottom is going to be between like 320 and 360, right? 0.320 and 0.360. And somewhere in that range, if you have a faster reacting car, it's probably going to be like somewhere in like the 360 range. A slower, it's probably going to be 300, 310, 320. So it's kind of the same, like you need to just put something in the start, put 320 in to start with, and and you got to focus on hitting it like you do at the racetrack to have a good light and make the lights match. If you're hitting it like you do at the racetrack and you're going red, then you obviously need to touch more rollout to in, in your practice tree to get to get the results you want. But again, at the end of the day, you're just trying to be consistent. I don't care. If you can sit on the practice tree and be 23 red 10 runs in a row, awesome. I can care less if it says 23 red. I just care that you can do it 20 times in a row or whatever it is, 10 times in a row. So um, it's kind of the same, but if you just wanted like a very blanket, like, and, and I would say the same thing for like the like top bulb, like a blanket um, rollout number for like the top bulb, I think is like 0.2. And then your delay would be similar to what is at the car. So I think if you put like 0.2 in your rollout, like I'm going to guess, Luke, like if you have a, uh, Point two in your rollout, and you have eleven forty in your car. You're going to have eleven forty in the practice tree, and is that pretty close for you? Tri applications with the converter that we run are a little bit slower reacting, so I'm like two thirty, but yeah, right in that range. Right. So the uh, one other thing that I'll share, Jerry and, and Jordan, if you want to, you can dig this up and share the link. Like if you're just completely starting anew on your bottom car, bottom bulb car, and you don't have any real idea where to start that rollout. 
um, Porter Tree's got something on their website that's just like a, a very base graph. Like if your car runs X with a with a 28 inch tall ro uh, tall front tire, like here's a good starting point. You know, I mean, it, it's certainly not exact, but it would get you, you know, at least a starting point. So, like I said, Jordan, if you want to share that link, that might be beneficial as well. Um, specific for you, Justin. Brian asks, when Justin says he works hard on making his car good. <laughs> open-ended question what are some of the specifics what are you working on oh man a bit of everything um i every single component is so important like i don't care if it's shock struts springs wheelie bar i mean anything from suspension components to 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 training and converter i've said this for years and i still believe it to be true to an extent but like you can take any car and if it has a good carburetor and a good converter it can be a pretty good race car and I still think that holds true. Like, I think like the two probably most important parts of your race car are the converter and the carburetor. If one of those isn't right, you don't have a prayer. But if those two are correct, everything else could be a little bit off and it makes it a pretty forgiving combination. But that being said, like when I say I'm work, like I literally work on every, I mean, I just got a new set of rear shocks for my Cobalt. I won the last race I went to and I'm literally going to put a new set of shocks on a test to see if I can make it better. Um, but that being said, like I, everything, I mean, I mess with converters, trannies, tranny ratios. Um, I, I'm building a bracket car right now. That's a roadster that, I mean, this is just going to sound crazy to probably everybody. You're all going to crack up laughing right now, but I'm building a bracket roadster with a blown big block and a three speed turbo 400 that should run four fifties in a roadster. Like, and it sounds crazy, but like, I think that if it works, I'm going to have like the ultimate bracket car, right? So like, I'm just always trying something. And if it doesn't work, then I'm going to have a blower motor for sale and probably a three speed also. Like, but I just, I, I don't know. I just try to always have, I guess for me mentally, I don't really believe I'm any better driver than anybody else. And I think that there's so many great drivers like uh, related to like uh, quarterbacks in the NFL if you're an NFL caliber quarterback, you're probably pretty damn good. And it's the system, like it's the car, it's the vehicle you're in, which is the whole team that makes like, uh, what's the guy from Kansas City right now? It's Mahomes. Like Mahomes is like the talk of the town right now. Well, is Mahomes just that much better than, is he really that much better than Tom Brady right now? No, but he's got a better vehicle. The coach is better. The receivers might be better. The offensive line's better, like whatever. So like I'm kind of take the same approach to drag racing. Like if I can make everything else better, like if I can make sure I have like the best quality weather station with the most accurate note keeping in my logbook with the best vehicle, like you combine it all. And like, it makes me look like a really good driver. So I guess I just, you know, when I'm talking about making my car better, it's literally everything like from having nice and neat and reliable wiring to having the best shocks like and everywhere in between like and, and not the most expensive shocks just what i think is the best shocks for me for my combination you know and i just feel like too like having been around you for a long time justin there, an element of this is just your ability and willingness to question like conventional thinking and also like to question your own assumptions. You're like, okay, I've found something that, that has worked. 
but what if I went the complete opposite direction? Like, would that not work? You know, I mean, like you just, you seem more willing than anyone I've met with the possible exception of Jason Lynch to just like keep tweaking, keep tinkering. The difference between you and Lynch, at least in my opinion, is like you take way better notes and can get back to square one. <laughs> Jason just keeps working, right? But it's similar in that like it's never, it's never complete, like that there's always the ability for more. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think that I just, I guess, like I have a lot of pride in having like the best car at the track in my class. Like that's like a goal for me and I don't always have it. Maybe I never have it, but that's like my goal. Like I want to have the best car. And I think sometimes to get an advantage or to have a better car than the rest, you have to kind of think outside. If you just do the same as everybody else, you're not going to have a better car. You know, um, like one example was, I mean, in, in 2006, my converter and my bracket dragster stalled 7,000 RPM. Today, there's a lot of people that have gotten to the really loose converter thing. I promise you in 2006, if there was 10 people in the country, I'd be shocked. And my dragster, like, I mean, I remember I had a brand new race tech dragster with a converter that went 7,000 behind a conventional head motor. And people were like, you're freaking nuts. I mean, you, could, you couldn't even hear it shift when it went on the track, right? Because we shifted pretty low. And I mean, it was just like people thought I was crazy. And now, fast forward, a lot of people are going to really lose converters, you know? Uh, what's the best way to learn how to drive the finish line? I don't know how applicable this is. Here's how I learned to drive the finish line. Take it back to, well, I guess if you want to take it way back, we could go to junior dragster, but you take it back to the Nova that I talked about earlier. Um, how can I put this real bluntly? Like that car was awful. Like it was junk. Like it was, I was really proud of it at the time. It was all that I had. But when I staged that car, all I knew was I could go under. Like maybe it was two hundreds, maybe it was eight hundreds. Like I had no freaking idea from one under the next. Like it just moved a bunch, but I had to learn that way. Like it was complete trial by fire. And so to that end, like I think it's rare in this day and age that even starting out, we jump into something that's that unpredictable, right? Technology's just come so far. But I would say the best way to learn to drive the finish line is to absolutely put your feet to the fire. Like this is, if my kids want to get into racing, like this is what we'll do. Like, you know, once they kind of have the basics down, it's going to be okay. Like, what do you think you can run? Okay. We're going to dial up like four or five or whatever from that. Like, I'm just going to force you to drive the finish line. You're going to have to do something and you're going to make a lot of mistakes before you figure it out. But that's ultimately how you'll figure it out. you're ever at an event where you're struggling or maybe um, like maybe you just broke something. Maybe it's third round. You broke a converter and you just threw one in and you don't know what your car is going to run. That is like the ultimate time to try something at the finish line. You have nothing to lose. Like you can't dial honest. And like, I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but like it really is like the, when your car is running poor or when you just broke something and changed it or, or you're chasing a problem, like in, in your car is really inconsistent, whatever, it is literally like the ultimate time to practice. Like you can you can try holding that tenth and see how it goes, right? Lose moments. Like what's the worst you can do? Screw up around that you're not supposed to win anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Derek asks Best advice for, um, this is specific, but I think it's got pretty broad application. Best advice for a super street racer going from a 3,500 pound small block car, so 1090 at 134, to a lighter chassis big block car going 1090 at 150. Basically, going from 
being the slower car most of the time to being the faster car almost all the time. So he's having trouble driving the finish line, only had the car for one year. Um, I'll, I'll let you riff on this first. I want you to say Derek's last name, though. I think it's Thibodeau. Oh, wow. I'm impressed. Ah, I, wouldn't even, yeah. I, I wouldn't even have attempted. Holy crap. Um, <laughs> I, honestly, um, my suggestion, especially being the faster car, and, and you, now you're going to be like flying up on people because a 150 in Super Street is definitely like the high end of the spectrum, is especially when you know you're holding or know you're getting there first. Like you, you're, you're going to see the closing rate and know you're getting there first you need to lift early. Like I literally have a whole training video. I think on, I think I titled it lifting early, but like if you wait until you get next to the person, you're going to blow by them and you're going to be past the finish line before you even did anything. Right. So it's, it's a situation where in my opinion, when, when you're used to being the slower car and, and you become that really fast car, I think you need to lift early on the run. And, and there's times like when I'm the fast car, like when I'm running super stock and I'm going 160 and I'm racing someone going 130, 125. I literally, I'll lift at 800 feet if I know I'm, like, when I see, like, wow, I'm closing fast, I'll, you know, rip it 800 feet, rip it again at 1,000, like, just work my way up to them, because the chance of me getting up to them and then getting down to their speed to take the finish line close is is never going to happen unless I'm dialed up three tenths or something, right? So, the reality is, the earlier you lift and the earlier you get an understanding of closure rate and, and, uh, and, and, and taking the stripe, I think the better chance you have of not taking too much. Or like, I, f I feel like I get into trouble with this, like within our elite members, because it seems like my answer in 90 racing specifically is always, well, just hold more, right? And, and I know it's not that simple, but particularly as the faster car, like you have the freedom to do that. Because to Justin's point, like if the speed difference is your 150 to their 125, like, are you going to consistently do a good job at the finish line? The answer is no. But if you can whittle that down to where it's your 130 or 135 to their 125, like you can see that. You can not only do a good job at the finish line, you can know that you did a good job at the finish line. So then the question becomes like, okay, in that scenario, I would like to get down to 130 to 135 mile an hour. Like I would like to kill 15 mile an hour. Like how much ET do I need to kill to kill 15 mile an hour? Well, that's how much you need to hold. Like just, I know that sounds kind of brazen to say like, just set up 84 that run. Like it makes your job so much easier because you take that 25 mile an hour difference and you manipulate it to where it's a five or 10 mile an hour difference where it's manageable. And you know what that's supposed to look like. And the, the, the other like hidden benefit to that is when you roll up on that opponent at like thousand foot, like they gotta be, I mean, there is an, an instant where, like, they look at the oil pressure gauge and be like, what the hell's – why is this guy right here right now? You know what I mean? And that can induce a mistake too. But I, I do think, like, the, the short answer, oversimplified answer, particularly on the rounds where it's a big split and you know that you're the faster car, don't be afraid to hold more. Speed that car up. It actually makes your finish line job a little bit easier. My only uh, – the only thing I will say to that that I've done forever is I have learned – by understanding the closing rate, how to consistently take a small stripe while chasing and not getting down to their speed. Okay. And yep. what I prefer, the reason I prefer that is like, like, let's be realistic. I have a modified car in super stock and I go 155 plus mile an hour because I want the big mile an hour. If all of a sudden I slow down to their speed, it's easier for them too. So although that's the easier way, if you're struggling, I think in the long term, 
just getting a grasp on that closing rate can be very, very big because then you get to keep that advantage. Like, like, let's be realistic. If, if you have them by 25 mile an hour, they have, are going to have a hard time judging you. But if you can learn to judge them, that's going to be a big plus in your, in your corner. Does that make sense? Uh, um, Bobby, this is more of a, an elite related question. Just finished my first build. Um, bracket racing starts early in 2021. How will elite membership help me as a new driver? Is the program too advanced until I get experienced? Let me say this, Bobby. We've got a lot of material within this is bracket racing elite, and a lot of it is very advanced. A lot of what we talked what we talked about here tonight is very advanced. We've also and we've got members who are at the tip of the arrow, right? That are are among the the very best racers in the country. We've also got members that don't have any experience that are in the same boat as you. And I feel like they would tell you the same thing that they have benefited immensely from elite. And that's basically because at this point, you know, we've been we've been doing elite for five years now. Uh, I launched this is bracketracing.com 12 years ago now. We've just got such a huge library of try full of full of lessons trying to appease everyone at every end of the spectrum. So while there will be elements, there will be things within Elite that probably won't apply to you that may be over your head, there will also be benefits, elements of Elite that benefit you immensely starting out. Like and the nice thing about jumping into the community is that we can work with you on some level to basically cater the experience to you. We can say, okay, listen, Bobby, here's where you're at. Here's what you need right now. Here's where to start. Here's 10 or so of our lessons that apply directly to what you're going to need to know to get started. And then obviously you're going to have the support of the community as a whole, because you're talking 400 plus racers, plus Justin and myself that have been where you are. Like we all started somewhere and, and most of us can remember that and can really help not only speed up the learning curve, but walk you through like, okay, like that, that, that mistake that you made that you like, you feel like you don't want to show your face at the racetrack again. I promise you I've done worse. And there's, there are more people in this, in this community that have been there and done that and can help walk you through that. Like I actually, I don't want to say that leads more valuable at one end of the spectrum than the other. Cause I'd like to think that we kind of run the gamut, but I certainly would encourage you not to shy away from joining the community just because you don't feel like you're on the upper level of the, the, the group of racers within it. Like we, we really do run that spectrum. I also feel that like one of the things that helped speed up my racing career was hanging out with those that were like way more advanced than me, which is kind of like in a way a portion of elite would be that way. And I just feel like I learned quickly, like any even minimal, like picking up on the lingo, like, like we talked about it earlier, like you explained, what does a spot drop mean? Well, you're going to get all of that lingo and understand what people are talking about and understand like the, the theories of that and all of the above very at a much quicker pace than, than just trying to learn on your own every weekend at the racetrack. Like, I just think that it can definitely quicken your learning curve from start to finish being new. Tanya asks, uh, when staging, sometimes I notice some racers try to flicker the bulb. They usually have a bad light or red light because they get antsy. Uh, What are your thoughts about this? Um, Tanya, 
Jordan can share this. There's a link to a, a specific lesson on this is bracket racing. That's it's actually one of my favorite lessons, just because we've got so much on track footage, and it's just dedicated to what I feel is like a proper staging routine. And I'll be honest on you, I try to flicker the bulb every single run simply because that's the only way that I can know exactly where I'm at run to run to run. And there are like there there is a a point like where you can flicker the bulb too much or if you don't have much experience in that where that can be rattling but i think by and large like and, and perhaps even like flickering the bulb is like an extreme of it but there is immense value into being staged as shallow as possible to know exactly where you're at so i actually wouldn't i would advocate for that style of practice more so than against it This is a fun one. Josh asks, uh, what advice do you wish you knew when you had, when you just started racing? He's coming at us as a, as a 20 something here with about 30 runs under his belt. Um, I've got a thought there. You got anything that jumps to mind? I feel like it depends on like what aspect. like I wish, um, well, like for me, like I came out of junior dragsters and, and I don't know why I've spoke about this before, but like people, like you racing a dragster in junior dragsters, obviously, and you're like initial for some reason, at least it was for my family and my dad and I was like, oh, we'll get like a dragster. We'll get a super comp car. I foot braked essentially my whole life from eight to 16. That's all I did. Why did I go to a, something with a delay box? Like, I just wish I knew then. Like, I wish I jumped in a stalker or a super stalker right out of junior dragsters. Does that make sense? Like, I just feel like it was, it's what I knew how to do already. Why, why did I get in something and race pro tree all of a sudden? Josh, but it would be to to filter your information. It, like try to, and it's really difficult in the beginning to figure out. And it's not really a question of who you can trust, because I think that racers, by and large, like are are well intentioned. But at the same time, like uh, long time racers with the best of intentions can either lead you down the wrong road or. Like you just, you don't know what you don't know. Like, and it's not to say that you can't be friends with everybody. Like you want to get along with everybody, but I would try to be very selective in who you take advice from. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the biggest winner. It, it doesn't have to be Justin or I, or this is Bracket Racing Elite, but I would just be mindful of not only um, taking advice from people that you trust, but also taking advice from people that like you respect that have, done it or you feel like could lead you to doing it and be very mindful of that right from the start um all right quick question on a door car a specific to 60 foot in traction what do you consider to be consistent as far as a window in 60 foot and uh if it's outside of that window like what do you kind of look to to change first i feel like this is a little bit of a loaded question depending on where you're racing how spread out the runs are weather etc but as a general rule do you have something to to share for scott man i don't know i uh it, it all those things are variables right like if you're racing at great bend like you spoke about earlier and it's like a 30 degree temperature difference and the wind's crazy like yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, if your 60 foot was in, within 200s on that 30 degrees, you're awesome, right? But on a on a day at a local bracket race where the weather doesn't move much and the track's consistent and blah, 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 like, 
I mean, especially in a bracket car, I mean, I don't want it to move more than a hundred, you know, I mean, I really don't want it to move more than four or five thousandths. Um, you know, like, like my bracket dragster, you know, uh, let's say in Vegas at a bracket race, it'll go from like one Oh six zero to one Oh six five. It starts moving more than those four or five, you know, thou it starts getting eight thou, 10 thou. I do want to make it better. And, and I'll, you know, and let, like just taking my dragster, for instance, like it might be a up or down in tire pressure. It might like the different tire pressure a little bit better, especially when you're just setting up the car, you know, you're still learning that. Um, it might be, I need to loosen or tighten the rear shock. It might be, you know, it, some people might consider it a bandaid, but there's a, oftentimes I might take a little bit of timing out to kind of smooth out the 60 foot, smooth out the wheel speed a little bit. So I, you know, by using the grid ignition, I'll actually take a little bit of timing out of the hit um, just to make the car leave a little softer. Um, it, it, it can be a number, there's a number of ways to get there. Um, but I would just, you know, again, by trying to, uh, you know, I always, I start with, um, trying to figure out what I want to adjust by trying to figure out like a common instance, like when the 60 foot moves the most, what's common to that? Is it a temp, you know, like the temperature went up Well, if the temperature went up, then that maybe, you know, when the track gets hot, you tend to lose traction. So how do I increase traction? You know, do I do that with the shock? Do they do that with tire pressure? You know, all of the above. So I kind of just try to look at like what's common in making the 60 foot move. Good stuff. All right, guys, we still have, I don't know, probably at least 10 or so questions to get to. I know this is running long, but we still have over 100 attendees here, and we promised we would do our best to get to everything, so we're just going to keep working our way through this. Listen, um, hold on a second. You're going to answer the next one because i got to go to the bathroom. All right, that's, that works. <laughs> all right, I'll be back. <laughs> Let me pick up one that I, that I feel good about. Uh, <laughs> All right, go ahead, J.L. Uh, so for talking about driving the finish line, this one comes from Jason. Uh, for consistency stake and making easy changes for bracket races, would you ever suggest using a throttle stop near the finish line instead of breaker letting off the gas? Yeah, um, this is actually something we talked about in Elite. This is something that I, I did early in my career and got away from, um, and I'll, I'll try to explain why. And it's also something that I've experimented with at times in super comp and super gas. And basically what Jason's saying is like, rather than implement, you know, a, a, a typical spot drop strategy, why couldn't I do the same thing and just close the throttle stop, you know, a second prior to the finish line and coast across that way I know exactly what I'm killing. The benefit of that is it takes the human error part out of it right? Like you have a predetermined spot drop. You know that you're not going to get caught up in the race and miss that spot, right? So there is an advantage to it. The disadvantage to it, and the reason that I've largely gotten away from it personally, is twofold. Number one, it completely locks you into that strategy. So like, say we take the, the spot drop strategy as an example. And let's say that I'm going to go into around holding 300s. Well, it's really rare that I will stage locked into, I'm going to, to kill that ET at a certain point. Usually I will stage saying, okay, I'm holding 300s. If I feel good on the tree, I catch my opponent before the finish line. Like I'm just going to roll them through and try to try to beat them to the finish line by a small amount. If, however, I have to hold it on the floor to get there, then I'm going to drive to that spot and kill the 300s when the spot drop is is coming on electronically you don't really have that option and the problem that i would run into is i would say catch that opponent early and want to start driving the finish line and then the stop closes and now i don't have any more momentum 
right? And it was just a difficult hurdle to climb, like in preparation for the race. So in retro, in answering your question, like, yes, there is some validity to that. I, I can see the argument for it. Having done it, I can also see the argument against, um, but I would not try to steer you away from experimenting with that because I do think that I learned a lot not only about my combination, but also about like my general finish line strategy in doing that. JL, all right, I, this is a- uh, They can ask more questions now. They can ask more questions now. I got a good, like, well, I'm good now. I'm glad you feel better. Yeah. I'm glad uh -huh. you feel better. <laughs> uh, more of a suspension related question, which is I, I feel like you do a better job of walking through this and explaining it often than I do. Uh, this gentleman, Mark, says, I have a worthy built street roadster, runs a 550s to the eighth, 870s to the quarter. Seem to have an overhooking problem that affects my reaction time by two to three hundredths. By adjusting the shocks stiffer, it seems to help get rid of it. It's a 454 small roller cam converter flashes to 6,000. In your opinion, would a looser converter help this problem go away? Um, I absolutely think it could. Um, and so there's another question uh, that Chandler asked. It says, why are people going to looser converters? And, and this is going to answer both questions. But I, more times than not, believe that a looser converter becomes more forgiving. So it's less susceptible to being affected by changing track conditions. Um, and, and I, so like when I first started this and why, like I talked about earlier in 2006, I went to a really loose converter is I ran my modified super stock car that at the time I was running a motor, I went through the finish line at, uh, I don't know, 10,300 RPM. And the converter would literally flash over 9,000. And what I learned is by the converter being so loose like that is the thing would almost hook anywhere. Like I thought like really fast super stalker that the thing would um, have a, a trouble spinning the tire. Well, what I quickly learned is the converter is so loose and such high stall that it wouldn't spin where like a super stalker that was a second slower than mine, but like a low RPM engine that the converter stalled 5,500 would blow the tires off like quite often because that initial hit of a tight converter is so aggressive that like, let's just say like the first five feet of the run, the tighter the converter, the more aggressive it is at that first five feet. When you get a really loose converter, it tends to be kind of mushy there, which is your reaction time. So, and it's, and it is the initial hook of the tire. So to answer, I guess, both questions is like, why are people going to lose your converters and will it help? I absolutely think it will. And I think that that is why people are going to looser converters is because it just kind of rolls off the starting line as opposed to like really hitting the tire. Um, if you don't want to purchase a converter, I think that it's something that lowering the launch RPM would also kind of do. Like Luke and I are on like complete opposite ends of the spectrums when it comes to torque converters. Like I joke with them that he runs like a 15 inch converter, like this gigantic converter that's like really tight, but he does. And let's be realistic. Like he's got one of, if not the best bracket dragster in the country. Right. But he also leaves at really low RPM. So I think that you can do it either way. Like you could really just lower the launch RPM and keep your tight converter in your situation that goes 6,000, or you could, you know, free it up and loosen it up and it would help it become more forgiving. George asks, uh, I've been a super gas racer and I want to go bracket racing. What do you feel is the, the most change that you would have to get used to? He says, except eighth mile. So I assume he's still going to be quarter mile racing. Regardless, um, I'll say this. 
number one, the mechanical side, like you've, you've got to, cause like your, your typical high powered super gas car is like not always the greatest bracket car, like just right out of the box. It may take some, some tweaking to, to get that thing down the racetrack consistently wide open from an actual driving standpoint, racing standpoint, it's the same game. Like, I don't think that there's necessarily a monumental difference. I would say if anything, my experience has been that it just requires a little bit of a change in mindset just because this is particularly the eighth mile racing, but I think bracket racing in general, like the variances are just smaller because there's, there's, you're running the whole race in one day, you have back to back rounds. Like you just don't have all the variables that you would typically have in a, in a super gas race. And as a result, the, the, packages are tighter like the racing is i don't want to say better but like there's just less margin for error and i feel like it 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 necessitates a little bit more aggressive mindset oftentimes you can get through a round or two in supergas where you're more or less like racing not to lose like you're taking advantage of the knowledge that you have about the weather or the situation or whatever the case may be whereas when you go to a bracket race like every single round the opponent in the other lane is trying to lay down like five or 10 total. And like, I just feel like there is less opportunity to take anything for granted. Like, I just feel like you have to, to approach things more aggressively. And I don't necessarily mean the driving the finish line more aggressively. I mean, setting, be willing to set up closer to perfect on the tree, be willing to dial tighter, not give away a thousandth or two here or there. Like it just, I feel like the game tightens a little bit and that requires a little bit different outlook coming in. Um, driving the finish line, your opinion on 90 degree or the front wheel. Uh, this is from Jim. Jim, I am a 90 degree guy. Uh, I have been for shoot, probably 15 plus years. Uh, it's just more comfortable for me. And when we say 90 degree, like what, what I do as we approach the finish line is rather than looking at my front end versus my opponent's front end or front tire versus the finish line. Um, like I just pick a spot on my opponent's car that is literally directly 90 degrees across from me. And if assuming that I want to cross the finish line first, I just try to position myself in front of that spot. For me, that's easier. If you pulled 10, you know, elite successful finish line drivers, you're probably going to get five each way. Like I don't, and I'm not going to say that there is a right way or wrong way to do it. For me personally, that's easier, but I don't, I think it's very much personal preference and it does take some getting used to like just simply the, the, the jarring thing, I guess, about the 90 degree method is that I'll oftentimes go down the racetrack, like without looking forward for three, four 500 feet. And I've, I've disciplined myself to do that. But the first few times you do that, that seems really odd, really jarring, right? Because you're, you're not looking where you're going. Um, and I think to, to really execute that strategy, you've got to be willing to do that at least for a period of time. What do you do, Justin? I uh, 100% do the front wheel. And I think, like, if I drove a dragster all the time, I would probably go to the 90 degree. But, like, with with like stock super stock or then when i just jump in a dragster there's so often just so many different front like you know like one guy that has a long front end i'm i gotta race his nose to my nose and my cobalt or if it's a really high front end, i'm racing my nose to their wheel or like there's just and then i very often like in super stock i'm chasing by such a great i mean it's often 30 mile an hour or more 
closing rate to get up and do the 90 degree method. Like I literally would have to hold a half a second. And so more times than not, I'm, I'm racing front wheel or, you know, what I, I guess I shouldn't even say front wheel. It's the car that I'm in, whatever it takes it with. Like if it's my like my cobalt, it's my nose to whatever their car takes it with, whether it's their nose, their front end, whatever the situation and, and very much of my finish line racing is closing rate because there's such big different differences in ET and speed as opposed to uh, like super comp or even bracket racing. I mean, when you're bracket racing these days, like eighth mile dragsters, like it's like a four tenths window that 99% of the cars are in, right? They go from 450 to 490. Like it probably even 490 to, or 450 to 480 is probably like 90% of the cars in the dragster class. So yeah, you can race them all the same, but like when you're on the door car side, like I'm gonna have a 450 Roadster dialing against seven second cars, I guarantee it. Well, you can't really race the 90 degree at that instance. So I just, it's just, because I race such a big variety of cars and difference in ETs, that's why I tend to do the front, front end. George asks, is there a benefit, this kind of gets back to something that you had talked about earlier and you're lifting early, is there a benefit to a womp of the throttle at say a thousand foot? George says he hadn't seen that before, it was the first time that he'd seen it. You want to kind of go back and, and revisit, like what is the, what's the thought process there? Well, I think it depends on, I mean, is there a benefit if you're going under? Um, yeah, because you get rid of somebody. So, like, let's just say hypothetically you're going on a track and you're holding 500s. Well, if you can kill 100 at 800 feet, 100 at 1,000 feet, now you only have to kill 300s, right? And you went from killing, holding five, and now you're only holding three. So it's it's more manageable when you get closer to the finish line to have gotten rid of ET earlier into the run. And then the other advantage is whether you're chasing or getting chased is keeping your speed up. Like, if you're getting chased and – you go down, let's say uh, I go 150 and Luke goes 170. He's already chasing me by 20 mile an hour. If I kill 300s at the finish line or, or towards the finish line, I'm going to go from 150 miles an hour to 130, let's say. Now I just went from being chased by 20 mile an hour to being chased by 40. There's no way in hell I'm judging that 40 mile an hour difference when I just whack the brakes at the finish line, right? Where if I know if I'm going 300 against Luke and he's chasing me by 20 mile an hour, if I kill it earlier in the run, let's say I kill 200s at 1,000 by whacking the throttle. Now, instead of me going 150, I might be going 148. But it's still a manageable speed. And, and it's vice versa, obviously, if I'm doing the chasing, it keeps my speed up to keep that speed advantage as opposed to going down and hitting the brakes, getting down to their speed really late. So that's why I tend to do it. Uh, this is me 20 years ago, the bracket racer coming out of me. What in the world makes you want to go out and win a world championship or a divisional championship? I feel like the, the answer is a little bit easier from your part of the country, Justin, just because it's getting better. But for the longest time, you didn't really have any bracket racing options. Like if you wanted to race, it was NHRA or nothing. In this end of the country where you do have those options, um, years ago, like I would have said the – the prestige, the name recognition, the notoriety. I think there's still something there, but I don't think that, and not to say that NHRA is not what it used to be. I just think that particularly the big dollar bracket racing scene is elevated to where that's now you can get similar recognition and, and notoriety. And maybe it's the rise of social media too. Um, 
that I don't think that that's as big a benefit. And just strictly from a financial standpoint, like the NHRA races don't pay near what the big dollar bracket races are. The flip side of that is you can't spend near as much either. And I'll say like personally, the reason that the NHRA stuff still appeals to me, there's a lot that goes along with the, the, the NHRA racing experience that maybe isn't that enjoyable. Like, I think it kind of gets a bad rap. Like I tend to have a good time at those events, but for all of the, the, the BS that kind of goes along with it, once you actually get in the car and strap the helmet on, like, in my opinion, that type of racing is way more fun. Like the actual physical going down the racetrack and it being quarter mile. And then the classes that I run specifically with the throttle stop. And there's just so many variables. It brings so much creativity into it. It brings so much more emphasis on strategy and approach and finish line driving. Like, I just love that. Like, I, I just, I think it's more fun. Is Granted, it's exciting to go up and stage 50 granders and million dollar races and things like that. But eighth mile bracket racing is just so tight that like it's, I'm making time trials more often than not because I realize that my car is better than I am. It's my sub 15 package against your sub 15 package. Like, and I'm not saying I don't enjoy that, but I really like like, okay, I don't know what the heck I can go. He don't know what the heck he can go. Like we're both going under, let's go see what happens. Like that's fun to me. And that, that kind of chess match at, you know, 150 or 170 miles an hour. Like I still like that. So I, the actual going down the racetrack part, I, I think it's actually more fun. Like on the West Coast, there's still, I mean, there's only like a couple, three, four real bracket, like big dollar bracket races. So you tend to be on like the West Coast. Um, it's kind of your only option. But like, obviously I can travel, but I still think like, and it almost doesn't matter what form of drag racing. I'm not even comparing it to bracket racing. You compare like, pdra or whatever like no matter what nhra has like always been the pinnacle of drag racing like you win a championship in nhra it's a huge deal like uh i mean take troy williams like the biggest drag race of the year is andy he won any this year that was like a huge deal and i remember him even stating it was a big deal this is a guy that's won like 50 and hundreds like they're like going out of style and it was a big deal for him to win 10 grand in indy right because it's indy and it's nhra like it matters and so i think that really pushes you to to win a you know, to try to race for a championship in like that pinnacle of drag racing. And the other, the only other thing that I will say, cause like right now so much is geared, like all these crazy high dollar bracket races is like, if I go to NHRA and I win six rounds, I win 10 grand. If I go to a drag, a, a big money bracket race and I win six rounds, I might win 600 bucks. There's something to be said for that. Like, I only paid a $300 entry fee and I won 10 grand in six rounds. You paid a couple thousand dollar entry fee and you won like 600 bucks, right? Or what, you know, depending on the event. And so, I mean, there's that end of the spectrum also. Like NHRA is not a bad deal when you look at it from, from that view, you know. Joey asked, do cylinder heads that are too big for your combination and or RPMs allow for more inconsistency perhaps due to uh, weather changes? I, a hundred percent. I think that like an engine, it's a combination, like too big of a camshaft, too small of a camshaft, too big of a cylinder head, you know, all of the above will absolutely make it run inconsistent. Um, and, and I think what I go to this a lot 
from in my own head. And, and that's part of like that roadster I was telling you about. Like this, this is a big part of why I'm building it. When I think about like what's the most consistent drag car on the planet, I really believe that a pro stock car is. And keep in mind how consistent a pro stock car is with the amount of human error involved, right? You've got a, an individual manually shifting four times and they will literally just go 653, 653, 654, 650 all day long. It's crazy. And why is that? Because they're getting the most and they, they've like optimized their combination. The engine, the tranny, the gear ratio, all of the above is like the optimal. Well, I think it's the same way with cylinder heads. If you have like a really big cylinder head on an engine and they want to be run at 9,000 RPM and you're running them at 7,500, they're not going to, they're, they're not optimized and they're not going to run as consistent as they could if you ran it at 9,000 RPM. So if you only want to run 7,500, then put a cylinder head small enough to run 7,500. And that's just my take on that. Um, and, and it can absolutely affect the consistency without a doubt. Like there's no doubt in my mind. So I just think that like whatever direct, if you want to run a 9,000 RPM motor, then hell yeah, do it and, and, and run it and get those big heads and run it at 9,000. But like, if you're not going to run it at 9,000, don't put too big of a head on it. Don't, like don't put C25 in a pump gas motor, you know, like, like a crazy fuel. Like I think it, it all, like the whole combination matters. Like from the fuel you put into it to the carburetor, like another thing is too big of a carburetor. Like you don't need a, a 1500 CFM carburetor on a 383 small block, right? Like it just, it, it all matters. And the cylinder heads falls into that category also. Uh, Jim asks, uh, when, when, monitoring the weather do you rely on density altitude or oxygen altitude uh i'll throw this to you uh, justin too because i know that you've got a pretty unique take on this um i of those two like i rely more on da but i will say that the the density altitude is just a factor among several that I look at. Like I pay a lot of attention to DA. I also pay attention to vapor pressure. I also pay attention to barometer uh, and, and, and wind. Um, and then there are other issues that'll add in humidity, things like that. Like I don't, if I'm not mistaken, Justin, like you don't pay much attention to DA at all, do you? I don't look at it at all. No, I just, density altitude and I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but it basically, density altitude is a calculated number of several things. So like it's uh, it's a little bit of temperature, a little bit of humidity, a little bit of barometer, whatever. Well, I just look at all those things individually. And um, because those are all gonna change differently for your combination. And you could say, well, you could just use like a different amount of DA per hundred. The problem with that is, is like if my engine combination is more affected by humidity than yours, well, moving the amount, like let's say I use 200 feet a hundred, I can't just move it to 250 feet a hundredth because the car is less affected by humidity because humidity is only a small portion of the factor. So like I, I want to just account for humidity differently for that one car. I've just, you got to break it. I, I don't know. I just break it up. It's, it's way, I guess it's probably complicated to explain, but I just don't know that you can really get the precision you want with just using density altitude. I, I don't think you can. Yeah, I think that's a really good explanation. Art asks, um, when and how, this is a good question too, uh, when and how do you determine that you need to get behind at the finish line, particularly when you felt like you were decent up front? So, and this is, I think, one of the things that, that most of us struggle with. Like, I can know that I'm holding 300s, 
when I feel like I let go low double O and there's not quite enough room to kill 300s, like I typically want the finish line because I feel like I had the starting line advantage. And case in point, the the last year that have been uh, 19 that I chased NHRA super comp points, I had coming into the last race of the year, like I think I had lost like 10, 11 rounds on the year. I had two red lights and nine double breakout losses. And it was just like my Achilles heel. Like I, in those instances, I want to take the finish line, right? And it, and it bit me a lot. In theoretically speaking, Art, the way that I try to approach this and the way that I would teach to approach this is to ask yourself the question pre-round in terms of, okay, however you're going to approach this round, like let's say that I think I can go two under. Are you more confident that you're actually going to under or as the race progresses, are you more confident that you had the starting line advantage? And really that comes down to like, how confident are you in your car, right? Versus how confident are you in your, your ability to recognize what happened on the starting line? And to at least like, I'm not saying that premeditated into the run, I say like, I'm definitely going to cross the finish line first or I'm definitely planning on, on, on dropping. It's more of in those coin flip situations, which do I have more faith in? Do I have more faith that I'm going to under? In which case, I just need to kill the 200s and hope for the best. Or do I have more faith that I had the better reaction time? In which case, I just want to cross first. Like I say, kind of going through that exercise pre-run helps me to uh, be more, not make the decision in advance, but be more prepared to make that decision as the race develops. Mark asks, at a bracket race, if you see a certain guy run one lane all day and you've run both and your car is consistent in both, if you had to run that guy, would you put him in the lane that he hasn't run? I would go to whatever lane gave me the best chance of winning. So I know it sounds bad, but like I almost don't care what lane he's been in. Um, if I feel like you know, if he's been in the right lane all day and I feel like I have the best chance of making a good run in the left, then I'm just going to go in the left anyway. Um, and I did, that's just how I approach it. If, if I think that, uh, I guess if I think that I can have a great chance in either lane, then yeah, I mean, I might flip him and try to take the right lane, but if I don't get it, it's no big deal. I just, uh, in general, I just try to get the lane that gives me the best opportunity to make a great run. that as well there are times where like let's say i've been down both lanes but i've made three consecutive good runs in the left like i won't fight with trying to throw that guy out of the right like i'll just go make my good run in the left again and hope for the best on the flip side particularly when i feel like there's like a chink in the armor on my end and or there's a pretty significant lane difference and you just it's all situational too because like if it's a pretty significant lane difference but i'm running like the track champion at this track like that dude knows the freaking lane difference you know what i mean but if it's somebody that i think either wouldn't know or just like the the mental gymnastics of having to do something different might have an effect then yeah i might try to take advantage of that it actually brings to mind just a, a funny story so a buddy of mine that i used to race with back in alabama we're at this really country track and there's this guy that my buddy comes up to me. He's like, man, you've got to watch this dude make a run. It's amazing. It's an older guy, open face, you know, bowling ball helmet, foot brake car. And he'd do his burnout left lane every time. 
roll his window down, cigarette dangling from his lips, reach out, flick the cigarette out into the grass, roll the window up and stage. Every time. Just, I mean, you could, you could set it with a stopwatch. And so my buddy's like, man, I know how I'm going to beat that guy. I know how I'm going to beat that guy. I'm like, how are you going to beat him? I'm going to put him in the right lane. I go, what do you mean? What's he going to do with that cigarette, man? <laughs> so sure enough, my buddy and this guy run in the final. And my buddy puts him in the right lane. And he does his burnout. And my buddy, I see him just looking over at him like, oh, I got him, right? My man rolls down the window. And I mean, don't think twice about it. Pulls that cigarette out, flips it plumb over the roof and into the grass in the right lane. And you should have just seen the look on my buddy's face. Like, he was beat right then. He's like, oh, man, I was not prepared for that. <laughs> you couldn't do that on the West Coast. If you flick your cigarette over the wall, you'd start a forest fire. <laughs> you know. probably would it's a legit hazard yes. um all right brenda asks uh, what's your preference staging first or staging second what is the advantage to each i have zero preference and i pride myself in having zero preference i can care less when i stage it doesn't i don't i don't think staging like the staging process the timing of it all of the above i don't ever want to be a crutch like i don't ever want to feel like i have to stage second to give myself a better chance of winning and so on and so forth. So for me, like, to be honest with you, from the time both cars are pre-staged to the time that I fully stage, I bet whether I'm in first, second, doesn't matter. I bet with it, it's within a second, every single run. It's just the same amount of time, like whatever. And if I happen to get in that amount of time from both cars being pre-staged to me being staged, if that happens to put me in first, then I'm in first. If I end up second, I end up second. It doesn't matter. Yeah, same, like 100% down the line. And it pride, like you said, pride myself on not mattering. And to the point, I don't know if you're like this, Justin, like I'll often come back from a run and somebody be like, oh, you ran that guy. He made you stage first. And I have to think about it. Like, I don't yeah. remember. Like, it just doesn't register with me at all. I, I, I don't care one way or the other. Follow-up question to that from Corey, and, and I feel like these go right together. And, and part of the the reason um, that this doesn't bother you, doesn't bother me. I think it lies in this. He asks, when do you put your finger on the button? When the last car stages or when you stage, if you stage first? Yeah, just... uh, for me, I, I've really disciplined myself and, and would try to uh, impart this upon anybody that will listen, that don't engage the trans brake button until both cars have staged, whether you are first to stage or last to stage, right? And what that allows you to do is to just kind of it alleviates the the matter of who stages first or second, right? Okay. So just if you stage first, hold the car with the foot brake. When your opponent stages, set the trans brake. That way you're pressing the button for roughly the same amount of time. Like you're taking advantage of auto start. You're going to be on the button the same amount of time. The tree's going to let you. You're going to let go. It, at that point, it doesn't really matter who stages first or last. Yeah, I know. I'm exactly the same way. Just as when both cars are staged, that's when I apply the trans brake. And I do the same thing uh, like – I think it's become like a the, the cool thing to do right now, like flicker the bulb 13 times. Like I I don't just, as soon as I see their light blink on, I hit the trans brake. Mm -hmm. I, when the bulbs are on solid, then I, I don't know that I take a deep breath, but I kind of just like pause, then hit it and I'm ready to go. Yeah. I try not to get on it too early, like in the case that they do flicker it. I went back to uh, Derek Thibodeau. <laughs> Derek asks, uh, not sure if you see my first question. Obviously, Derek, we must have missed it. I apologize. Um, but on the throttle stop, uh, shifting 
on time, like on the stop, or on RPM, like what is better? And keep in mind, Derek's in a in a super street car, so I feel like that opens it up a little bit. I, I think it depends largely on the power to weight. Like for your typical, in today's world, super comp, super gas combination, like I would say 95% are shifting on time while the car's on the throttle stop because they're typically overpowered, relatively light cars. And A, it's an easy way to kill some ET, plus it, it minimizes RPM fluctuation on the throttle stop, plus it minimizes the, the potential traction issues coming off the stop and low. But I can still see a, a value in a underpowered, like heavy super street car into kicking off and low to gaining that momentum. It's going to build RPM on the stop, but it should do the same thing every time. So in that situation, I think you could make an argument for shifting on RPM. Um, going back to the, uh, the top end throttle stop for a, a spot drop, Justin, this may have been when you took your bathroom break. Couldn't you turn this, oops, sorry about that. Couldn't you turn the stop off for reference and still be able to drive the finish line? Yeah. So like you could have the stop closed, coast for a little while and then come back wide open. The problem with that, at least in my experience, like it just changes the whole rate of closure. Like I've done that too. And it's kind of same deal. Like I feel like I'm locked into really what I, when I would do that, it was I would kind of depend on my over-aggressive opponent to see my car lose momentum and assume that I was like dropping and they sit down with me and then I kick back wide open and go back around them. So I always felt like I needed the kick back wide open. And to make that work, like I think you'd have to be wide open for like 300 feet to kind of regain your bearings as far as that rate of closure. And at that point, I feel like you kind of diminish the, the, value of the spot drop right because it's so early in the run that no one's going to react to it necessarily so i don't know like i think i'd almost rather just coast across the finish line i i, I think kicking it back wide open just adds like another kink into that uh all right ed schmidt bottom bulb uh this is a good one for you justin do you count lights or do you just leave on the blast light you're more of a counter right? well yeah i don't actually count but i do watch it come down right. Yep, absolutely. I just, uh, I, I mean, in my head, like, I don't say it, I don't think, I just, it's just like going through the motions, but like the top light's almost like the get ready light, the second light, boom, third, you hit it. Like, I don't just stare at the bottom at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and see, what I had always been taught, what I've always tried to do is stare at the bottom, but like, I'm kind of going to defer to you because I don't group shit, group things together on the bottom anywhere like you do. I have talked to several successful bottom ball racers that do that. So it's, it's just another example that there are multiple ways to kind of skin the cat. Yeah. Yours is really like a result of endless practice, right? I mean, like it's, I guess there's some rhythm to it, but like, it's just that, that, that you, yeah. you know what I mean? You're, I do think it's rhythm, but I also, and I also think for me, it's like, it's like a comfort thing. Like I know when it's coming. And I think that's why when I just tend to just jump in a dragster and hit the top, I struggle because I don't have like that get ready light, you know, or the two get ready lights, I should say. Like, it's just like, I didn't know where bam, it flat. Like I tend to get super tense. I tend to like, when I can just watch it come down, I'm just calm, laid back, easy going, not tense. Like it's just a different mindset for me, which Unfortunately, like if I just stare to the bottom, I'd probably be better on the top, but obviously my priority is the bottom. So I definitely uh, watch it. It is completely like a rhythm. Came in from John. Um, and I assume this is delay box related. Yes. 
push the throttle before or after releasing the trans brake button. Obviously, if you're on the bottom, you have to be on the chip before you can let go. Um, on the top, I'm one like um, I kind of uh, learned how to race, discipline myself how to race. Like I stage just a little bit above idle and basically hold the RPM there until I let go and then floor it. Um, nowadays, like you can use a, an, an auto start type setup that will do that for you and just kind of has it eliminates the, the thinking behind that. Um, and honestly, like I in this day and age, I don't think there's a significant difference the other way. Like my wife learned how to race. She would stage and deck it. And when I tried to break her of it after like, you know, probably 10 years of racing that way, it was a real struggle to the point that I said, look, just if you're comfortable with that, just stage and deck it. And what I did, we, we basically, rather than using a starting line enhancer, I used a separate rev limiter to hold that RPM lower just so it wouldn't build quite as much, you know, transmission converter heat while she's sitting there on the chip. And then when she releases the button, it would go up to the launch chip, but she just like, it was, it's obviously a, a, a result of repetition, but she was just more comfortable with that thing banging against the rev limiter and letting go. Um, and I think there's value too, like if you go back and forth between say pro tree racing and, and full tree racing, or maybe even top bulb and bottom bulb racing, like there's some value to just stage, set the button and deck it, you know, and just so that you're doing the same thing every time and don't necessarily have to think about that. And I don't think that that's like this huge detriment. I'm not going to say that you, you can't win if you set the trans brake and then deck it, you know what I mean? actually ran a starter line enhancer for a little while but i didn't care for it because the pedal kind of goes limp you know but um like my car now is set up where it has like the dual chips but i very often um it, it, like my whole career prior to having the dual chip set up i let go on the top and then mat it i just like go to it even though it's set up to do the other way i and you know what's funny when i find myself doing it is like i don't top ball brakes often but if i have like a pretty big spot I'll let go on the top and deck it, which is like way too soon, but it just goes to like that 2,500 chip. That's like the only time I end up using the chip, you know? Right. Yep. So same. All right. Uh, one more from Chris, uh, and this one will throw right to you. You talked about your small blower setup on the Roadster. What are your thoughts of utilizing that in superclass racing? Because your plan is to strictly bracket race, right? Yeah, my plan is to strictly bracket race. But that being said, like under a super street car that um, I helped him quite a bit with, it had a 250 blower on a small block. And it, I mean, he won a super street national event. He, I mean, just last year at the winter nationals, I think he was in the, he run it up in super gas with a 2,800 pound cobalt and uh, all of the above. So I think that it will work fine. It is just a little bit less predictable day to day. And I think that's just a product of being on alcohol. It's not because the blower, it's just being on alcohol. We actually ran um, my top dragster that Kyle raced all the time. Kyle ran it in super comp. Um, went 890 at like 195 uh, with an 871 blower on a 540 and it was great it was just a little bit more difficult day to day so but it will work absolutely robin asks uh, thoughts on moving closer to the center line for better viewing uh at the finish line uh angle changes etc uh, that's i've seen that that uh, that strategy employed robin i'm not a big fan of it a number one like 
just feel like it's safer in the groove. <laughs> and B, like the way that I drive the finish line with the 90 degree rule, like the angles don't really change anything for me. Now, perhaps moving closer to the finish line could alter it a little bit for my opponent. Uh, I've actually seen um, drivers that, that felt like they had really good cars that maybe felt like they were a little bit less skilled at the finish line actually do the opposite and move further away, you know, towards the guardrail, thinking that it made the finish line a little bit more difficult for their opponent. But I'll be honest, just having done this for so long and I've raced at tracks that are literally not wider than the two lane road in front of my house. And I've raced at like, um, like West Palm beach or Byron come to mind that I, I mean, that Byron's gotta be 120 feet wide. Like it's the widest track that I've ever been down. And I don't feel like a monumental difference. Like I, I've never really thought about the distance between me and my opponent going as we approach the finish line. Like I just, I don't really think it's a, a measurable advantage or disadvantage. Um, all right, here's uh, one. I think this is the last question we'll ch close on. Three hours later, thank you guys again for all this interaction. This has been a ton of fun. Hopefully you've uh, gained something from it. We still have a really good crowd here, which is thank you guys for sticking with us for so long. But uh, Joey asked, when does converter slippage get to be too much through the light, uh, the, like that slippage number obtained from a, from a race pack? I, it 100% depends on your combination. Like I think that there's like, really fast cars like top sportsmen top dragsters where they see like one percent at the finish line just because they're so fast so when i got a car like that i'd say three or four percent is too much like on my bracket dragster i say i honestly shoot for like five to six percent if it goes up to eight or nine anything better than 10 is okay i don't have any of my race cars that i ever want more than 10 percent. most of my cars stay in the five to seven percent range four to seven percent range i would say and that's what I shoot for. But I do run converters with mechanical diodes, things like that, that help with the efficiency. I think like if you had a spragless converter, 10, 11% is probably okay at that point. Um, so, but I think it does depend on your combination. Times before with an elite, like that um, efficiency number, that isn't solely representative of converter like you can manipulate that quite a bit with gearing with 100 percent gear ratio tire size all of the above like you could take a converter that slips 10 percent with a 410 gear and put a 430 gear in it and it's going to slip six percent and uh and and that also means that when you calculate your finish line rpm switching from a 410 to a 430 it's not going to go up as much as you think it is because the converter is going to inadvertently get more efficient which is going to bring the finish line rpm down so it's something to think about when changing rear gear or tires like if you think hey i need to gain, pick up my finish line rpm by 400 well if you just do the math and figure out exactly what ratio change you need to pick up 400 rpm you're probably going to pick up 270 280 because the converter is going to gain efficiency in the process so you really need more ratio to get that targeted 400 rpm of rear end gear change thank you so much for uh for for giving us three hours of your time for all of you that attended specifically the 80 plus of you that are still here three hours later thank you so much for your time um i'll just close by saying like if you enjoyed if you feel like you benefited from this tonight if you liked this you will love this is bracket racing elite these are the types of discussion the subject matter that we have day in and day out now don't, don't feel overwhelmed. We don't necessarily go live for three hours a day, right? But this is the type of stuff that we talk about 
all the time within the Sys Bracket Racing Elite. If you like this, you will love that. Would love to see you on the inside within Elite. On behalf of Justin, Jordan, everyone here at TIBR, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Hope that you're able to take something away from this to apply to your own racing. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th. <laughs>